election is used 96 times. The word gender is used 127 times. Economic The word inequality is 147 um, times. Um, You talk about things. What what is the old saying? Uh, What do you care about where you spend your money? You know, I love my family, but but you're spending all your money at the bar. But I love my family. But but you're you know you know I mean follow a man's actions, um, not what he says. Um, in this case, you can follow what they say. They make no bones about it. They don't miss words. Um, the economic report of the president includes the word inflation fewer times. It includes the words emissions, gender, and inequality. I'll let you decide. You know how seriously or not you take. Um, the economic report of the president of the United States. I saw yesterday where he had um, he had counseled with uh, Barack Obama when Obama paid a visit to Washington. Um, they were talking about, I guess, when Obama was not you know performing in his rock star um, status. He, uh, he had a little time for Joe. Remember Barack, Barack, Barack. I'm over here. That was sad. I'm over here. Um, so um, so when Obama's in Washington, apparently there's a conversation amongst some of the insiders about the intent of Biden in 2024. And he loudly and proudly said he intends to run for re-election. I want you to sit down for just a second uh, and, and just study this for a second. So the guy's 79, nearly 80 now. He's got two more years on this presidency. Um, 62% of Americans believe there's something wrong with Joe Biden. That They don't want to insult the president. There, there's a certain decency that a lot of Americans still have about the office of the presidency. Uh, the, the word Thigpen would use is a reverence, um, probably why a lot of people didn't like Trump. He appeared to be a bit irreverent. Um, but there's a certain dignity and a certain reverence that we think we owe the office, no matter who is um, elected. Um, it was hard for me with Obama because I felt Obama had targeted me. You know, Obama put down those guns and, you know, clinging to guns and God, and um, you didn't build that. And, I mean, he said some things very um, subliminally that, were personal to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, I just took them very personal. Um, Obama was not in cognitive decline. He was well aware and very intentional of what he said and how he meant it and uh, the way he wanted the message to be, I don't know, sewn into the national debate. Um, Biden's a different animal. Biden's just incapacitated. So there's some forgiveness that I give this guy. When he says things and reads things, I don't I don't know that he really knows what he's saying or reading. Um, he's a feeble old man in the twilight of a political career, and he's talking about running for re-election again. So if you're a Democrat listening, well, you're not a Democrat, you're six o'clock. Um, you guys get up at about eight or so. Um, but if you were happen to be up um, and listening to my voice, there's no way you can defend that. I mean, there's no way you can look at this guy today at 79 years old and believe he could potentially be the American president at 86 years old. Um, that's why when I read this economic report of the president, and I see inflation, emissions, gender, and inequality in order. I mean, what is the biggest problem with the economy today? I mean, inflation should have been in it 6,000 times. I mean, every, it should have been inflation, period. Inflation, period. Remember in uh, elementary school, you know, I will not talk in class. Mm-hmm. I will not talk in class. Um, in, 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 I mean, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, I, I, mean, never I, had to, I, I never had to I, write that over and over again. I had to do a lot of that. Um, <laughs> I did too. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, write it and erase it mm-hmm. and write the board full again and erase it again. And you had to stay 20 minutes after class or 30 minutes. And it was an eternity when you're in the second grade. And there's G.I. Joe with a Kung Fu grip to be played with and, uh, you know, bicycles and, and skateboards and all these uh, things. Not, not video games. We played outdoors uh, in the day. 
So when you when I read the economic report of the president, I, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the Obama model. I mean, it's the Obama acolytes that are running the White House. Um, so, so I forgive. I don't want to say I forgive. I look past what is in the economic report of the president because I don't think he knows. I don't think he has a clue. I think they kind of situate him and they say, Joe, um, you know, are the, are the words big enough on the teleprompter? Are they slow enough on the teleprompter? And we still watch him struggle. Well, if any serious sane person believes that that man today in six years will still be able to carry on a, a cogent conversation and, and you know, a, uh, thinking enough, um, assertive enough to be president in six years, it, he's not even there now. I mean, he's not anywhere near capable of performing. I mean, it's a hard job. It's, it's a difficult job. It's a demanding job. And this guy's just simply not up to the task. But he tells Obama that he wants to run again, and he'll be 86 years old by the time he concludes his second term. There's no way this guy can run again. It's inconceivable that the Democrats would allow him to run again. So if not him, whom? And the word I keep hearing or the name I keep hearing is Pete Buttigieg. Um, Kamala Harris said yesterday, you see this, what she, what she said, no. just when you think she cannot appear to be any more, uh, let's, let's call it what it is, just dumb. I'm sorry. I mean, just dumb. When she says this, she gave a speech yesterday and she said, um, space, it affects us all and it connects us all. I wonder if there's not a conspiracy by our speechwriters. <laughs> I mean, what I, I what does that even mean? I have no idea. Everybody <laughs> in the audience, nobody in the audience knew. They're looking like, okay. I mean, her words, space, period. It affects us all, comma, and it connects us all. I believe this. I believe we have um, one man in serious cognitive decline, never been a rocket scientist. Nobody's ever accused Biden of being an intellectual. And, and then you've got a lady who I'm beginning to believe all the rumors out of Los Angeles that she did um, her political progression was earned the old-fashioned way, um, you know, by doing whatever it took to get where she needed to get. Um, I don't know that to be true, but after seeing her on the world stage, um, some of the arguments that were made beforehand um, appear to be true. So she says, and I just wonder this, is there a conspiracy by her speechwriters to, to write speeches that make her appear to be just completely and totally <laughs> uh, aloof and out of touch and and just irrelatable. Well, and if she wasn't aloof and out of touch, she would catch that and not give those speeches. You would like to say those so. words, right? You, you would like to believe um, she would. But yeah, space, it affects us all and it connects us all. Um, I think the speechwriters don't like her. I think they see in her everything um, that we were told she may be. When she arrives on the national scene, I think AG of California, then a U.S. senator from California, um, presidential candidate, that got less than 2% of the vote, plucked because um, African-American females needed to vote in higher percentages, and um, I guess they did uh, vote for a fellow African-American female uh, on the ticket as vice president. But, um, yeah, it's just kind of bizarre that this is where we are in America today. You've got one political party. And, and I'll say this, and we'll, I, I wanted to touch on this yesterday, but I, I'll absolutely make sure we cover it today. Um, Ron DeSantis is running circles around Donald Trump. I mean, Trump is doing things. But DeSantis Ron, is, is in office. I, he's an I, acting governor, Trump's and he's a doing former, things. Uh, Trump's a former president. Yeah, who's been you know taken off I, Twitter. He's a former president. 
A former president's a big deal. True. Uh, Obama's a big deal. So what Trump's are you saying? What's big your point? Deal. Here, um, I'm trying. I sound like I'm defending no, no, Trump, no, 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 no. and he should be. I mean, I, I get that. You're, you know, we're having a debate here. Um, kind of devil's advocacy mm-hmm. uh, makes for interesting radio. No, I mean, I, you know, I just think DeSantis is appearing to. Here's here's the point I want to make. I think if you had a primary today, DeSantis beats Trump. I mean, I really believe that. I never in a million years thought we would get there, but I I think DeSantis is doing exactly what we talked about um, if Republicans are going to get in charge. or, or I'll give you an example. I think in Florida, you're probably right, but nationally, I just, I don't know. But DeSantis is is doing a great job. There's no doubt about it. He's, he's, I don't want to say he's weaponizing government. I mean, that's a lousy way to say it because Republicans should never weaponize government. I'll give you an example. Um, In the National Review yesterday, there were a couple of articles. And the National Review, I told you, is having this, it's obvious, they're having this internal struggle. I mean, they want things to be like they were. Um, but they're not. And I think they've accept, they don't like the way things are going in the Republican Party because there are not many America Firsters at the National Review. I mean, it's the, it's the intelligentsia of conservative um, politics. It's the, um, the Kevin Williams, the Rob uh, Lowry's. The, uh, the Andy McCarthy's McCarthy wrote an article yesterday, um, not highly critical, but somewhat critical of the 35 year old female judge that made the ruling against the mask mandate. Now, now McCarthy, uh, I mean, he, he, he parses words and he, um, convolutes certain subjects, but he says, um, I went back and read the administrative procedures act because in, in essence, that is the, the, here's the point I want to make. McCarthy wants this party to continue to be um, intellectually sound and, and motivated. In other words, we don't want to be rambunctious. We, we don't want to be what um, that DeSantis guy going after Disney, DeSantis guy going after Twitter. That's what the Democrats do. We don't want to be that. We want to be the, the high ground party. We want to be the, uh, the, the moral and ethical party. We want to do things the way William Buckley said they must be done. We want to convince and impress people that our ideas come from a, a smarter realm and a more intelligent um, way of thinking. And the American public are tired of that. We, we just absolutely are tired I of, no interest of in intelligentsia. It. We want to break things. I mean, am I right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking to you. I mean, but yeah, nod your head. I mean, we want the party to go out and break things. Andy McCarthy wrote, say, writes an article in the National Review, um, and he's basically trying to say the lady made the right decision, but there was no intelligence involved in here. There was no in, in, intellectual um, reasoning here. She just did it because she's a Republican appointed by President Trump, and that's the Democrat narrative. I mean, the Democrat narrative has been since day one, since the— um, since the abolishment of the mass mandate, the argument has been she's a Trump appointee, she's female, and she's 35. What did you expect? And, and McCarthy kind of goes along with that, and he, and he brings up words. Remember yesterday we talked about um, arbitrary and capricious? I went back and read. Uh, let me see what, what section it is. Section two, uh, 264. Um, it is basically regulations to control commutable diseases. She based her decision on interpretation of Section 264. And that is part of the Administrative Procedures Act. Um, And the Administrative Procedures Act is to prevent arbitrary and capricious rulemaking. In other words, it is to stop the government from being Goliath. Here's it, by the way. It's our David. The Administrative Procedures Act is kind of to... um, not let government run over us at every corner. Um, 
we can define sanitation how we choose to define sanitation. Um, we, we can be arbitrary and capricious. Nothing stops us from that. But you've got this Administrative Procedures Act. And, and McCarthy is a Republican, but, but, but he, 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 has, he tries to intellectualize. And, and I, I just think the, the judge basically said, you know, the CDC does not have um, the authority to do what it is they're doing. And McCarthy complicates that. He's one of us. I mean, by and large, I mean, I told you, I have enormous respect for Andy McCarthy. I think he's a really bright man, but he wants everything to be battled and and debated in an intellectual format in um, who has the smartest and brightest ideas. And I think some of the debate we had yesterday about America first, um, I mean, it keeps reminding me that our voters just aren't very interested in that. We're not high-minded. We're not high-browed. We see things in a very simple, matter-of-fact sort of way. Um we understand the Administrative Procedures Act is um, something in the government or embedded in the government to stop these arbitrary and capricious. But McCarthy says, stop, let's think through this thing. We're like, no, we're two and a half years into a pandemic. The mask has not been proven to be scientifically sound nor effective. We're not going to wear it any longer. That's good enough for most of us, but it's not good enough for McCarthy. McCarthy has to figure out whether this really uh, falls in line with the interpretation of the Administrative Procedures Act and whether Section 264, you know, the regulation to control communicable diseases. I'm just sensing that most of you listening don't give a rat's rear end. I got two words. Shut up. Yeah. And I think you feel the way most other Republicans feel today. And, and the point is, McCarthy is a, a respected voice of conservative um, legal mind. Um, he would be similar to Jonathan Turley. I mean, if you want to hear somebody talk about the the facts and and and, and legal ease of a matter, um, I mean, if somebody said, Ken, you can have a lawyer on this show once a week to discuss legal matters in a conservative fashion, it would be Turley or it would be Andy McCarthy. But but McCarthy, really and truly, when I read this yesterday, I'm like, dang man, I mean, get past that. Everything does not require. You know, a 3,000 per uh, word essay. Yeah, an over-intellectualization. And that's, the, that's where we've been, Rev. Mm-hmm. That's where this party has been. That's the William Buckley, George Will effect. Everything is complicated. And what you and I, where you and I have landed, and the majority of people listening to my voice, um, there is no scientific evidence, statistically insignificant. I mean, I know we've got these peer-reviewed, and, and, and I think Sam and I had a debate a few months back about, you know, a peer-reviewed um, study said, well, there's another peer-reviewed study that said something else. There is no um, consistency nor consensus on wearing masks saving lives. There just isn't. I mean, the vaccine, there's, there's a lot of evidence there. Uh, the boosters, there's some evidence there. Um, the, the, the only clear evidence there is in the entire pandemic is age and obesity are the main risk factors that lead to um, an eventual negative outcome, death or serious illness, ventilator, uh, being in the hospital for a month, it's age and obesity. I mean, there, there's a complete and total consensus. I don't care if you're a Republican, a Democrat, a liberal, an anarchist, doesn't matter. I mean, if you look at the totality of information out there about COVID, the pandemic, the mask, there, there's one thing that I think most people can agree on. Um, age and obesity are the risk factors that lead to death or um, hospitalization and ventilation. And other than that, it's so abstract. It's so unknown. It's so imprecise. And, and I think the lady made a good decision, but McCarthy's trying to take her own.
because she was not in, 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 in intellectually rationalizing, you know, what, what needed to be done or not. Let's go to the phone. Steve in Florence. Good morning, Steve. Hey, morning, guys. Um, I don't think Trump should run again. I voted for him twice. Um, I think he shook things up like he was supposed to. I don't think they're, if you believe the election was rigged or legit, he lost the one time and then they stole it from him. And I believe they stole it from him. So I think they're going to steal it from him again or we're going to get stuck with a friggin' Democrat. I think you should go out, do a couple debates, you know, get the crowd going and then endorse one of them. And that's how I feel about that. I'll take it out there. Thank you, Steve. Appreciate that. Um, yeah, I mean, I feel the same way you do. And I'm feeling more and more and more that way. I mean, if Trump runs, I'm in. There's no doubt about it. And if he runs, he'll be the front runner in the Republican primary. But but six months ago, I mean, everybody waited on Trump. It looks to me like DeSantis is not waiting much longer. I mean, some of the moves he's making are very politically motivated. Rev said, you know, in Florida, no question about it, across the country, there's still a lot of Republicans don't know much about Ron DeSantis, but he's changing that. Mm. I mean, he's taking on Disney. I mean, if there was Twitter. a way they could team up, and if they were a team, I know that they, you know, there there may be a chance for their opponents and competitors. But if they were a team, it would be strong. Trump's not going to be a team with anybody. I, I know, but he's just not going to be a teammate. You think Mike Pence was Donald Trump's teammate? <laughs> no. Yeah, well, he didn't do exactly what Trump wanted done. What, what did Trump do with him? Yeah. All right. So, so there you go. Three hey, minutes. Mike, let's take a break. I want to do a better job of staying on point and on time. Ooh. Back in just a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number Thursday morning edition of Wake Up Carolina. Let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. You're off to a great start as always. But um, I strongly disagree with you, Ken, about uh, McCarthy. I think he's a, pretty much a classical sophist that he just wants to uh, impress someone that he can be very intellectual about things. And he's a sophomore. He's not a senior in that respect. But he does have his reins on the the reins of power in the Congress. I do. uh, I, 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 I agree with you. I wish Trump would take the role as kingmaker but I'm afraid he's the lead stallion. That's the only thing he wants to be. I couldn't agree more, Mike. But I mean, I'd love to see yeah. it. Well, I don't know that I, I mean, I hear what you're saying about McCarthy, and I don't disagree with all that. I mean, McCarthy gets caught up in himself. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate the call. McCarthy gets all caught up in himself at times. Um, and there's certain things that, that he understands better than other things. This would be, I actually read some of the comments yesterday. And now, there's two different McCarthy's. There's Kevin McCarthy, who's in uh, the House, and the minority leader, and then Andy McCarthy. Andy McCarthy is the the author you're talking Andy about. Andy McCarthy is a well, he's a, yeah, he's the um, he's the legal he's, expert he's on the staff at the National you. Review. Uh, and and McCarthy is or Andy McCarthy. I'm not talking about Kevin McCarthy. He of good hair. Andy McCarthy <laughs> is um is once again a a frequent writer for the National Review. He writes on the majority of Rush law. Limbaugh used to talk about him a lot. Who is that? Rush Limbaugh. Yeah, well, I, mean, Limbaugh and, held him yeah. I hold him in high regard. I mean, yeah. I really do. Um, but there's an interesting comment. I'll tell you before, you know, I don't just read the article. I read the comment because you folks matter more than what, I mean, it, yeah, it matters what Andy McCarthy thinks, but you know what matters more than what McCarthy writes? What you think about what he wrote. So there's 200 comments. I mean, the article was put up yesterday at about 350. There's 200 comments. Um, 
And I mean, it's pretty interesting because this is a subscriber magazine. This is what they call NR Plus. I'm a subscriber because um, I'm an intellectual. So I'm a subscriber to the National Review. And, and, and the way you um, access some of these comments are being a fellow subscriber. And when you look at um, the comments about, you know, Andy McCarthy's analysis, um, that's kind of where the public is. I mean, that's where the consuming, and I would call the, the plugged in and consuming Republican electorate. Um, he's senior fellow at National Review Institute and a National Review contributing editor. I mean, he's written books. He's a, um, once again, smart man. Um, I hold him in high regard, but but this is administrative law. He's, um, I guess, you know, he, he did a real good job. He's done a good job with Hunter Biden's story. I mean, he says Hunter's got big trouble, and he thinks Joe Biden has big trouble coming down the pike. Um, a lot of the Joe Biden trouble to be circumstantial, but he thinks there's enough smoke there to, to really kind of um, affect the Biden presidency uh, with the the appearance of impropriety. Mm. But, um, but, but you got to understand, if a guy's a senior fellow, and he's the contributing editor, law and order editor at the National. I mean, he's got to be a little above the fray. I mean, he can't be a radio show host. But um, did a phenomenal job in walking us through um, some of the mask, you know, what, what, the, what the law said, what the interpretations made by the CDC said. I think it's always good, if you're not a lawyer, to hear what a lawyer has to say. Now, you know, not a liberal lawyer. I'm not talking about the guy on MSNBC or CNN. I mean, you know what they're going to say. And I think McCarthy, Andy McCarthy, not Kevin McCarthy, um, does a pretty good job of calling it as he sees it. Let's go to the phone. Boudreaux in Orangeburg listening to WTQS. Hey, Boudreaux. Good morning, there, gentlemen. I, I tuned in when you are talking about uh, Vice President uh, Harris there. And uh, was she talking about outer space when she said space? or just, well, I didn't catch the, the initial quote. Uh, that's the only quote I've got is yeah. space, I think period. Was, I think she was talking about space. It, it affects us space. all and connects us all. Yeah, I mean, I would imagine she's talking about space exploration or space travel. Well, I'm going well, I'm, I'm to be, I don't know if I'm being devil's advocate, but I'd like to give anybody the benefit of the doubt now. All right, I really do, even an idiot. I'm not saying she's an idiot, but if the shoe, anyway, uh, maybe, just maybe, she's indicating that she believes in astrology because it affects us all, means, you know, depending on where the certain star, I don't understand that stuff, by the way. I know I'm a Taurus because somebody told me, see, but maybe that's indicating affects us all that, you know, she believes in astrology and connects us all. Hell, everybody on the planet at night can look up and see the same star some other side of the world can see. That's that's all I got. Well, I mean, other than that, she's I guess she's just an idiot. I don't know. But I was grasping at straws to try to make sense out of what she said. And uh, those are the only two things I can think of. She believes in astrology, and we can all see the same damn stars from our house, I reckon. I, I don't know. That's best I can do, Kamala. Best I can do for you, hon. Thank you, Boudreaux. Appreciate it. Yes, space. <laughs> I'm sure she was just trying to be inspirational. Right? I guess. <laughs> I or either her speechwriters are conspiring. I mean, I, there, there's a chance <laughs> that of that. Could I, so stick with me here for a second. I think this is interesting. may not be to you, but I think it could be for some of us. So McCarthy um, writes his article. Once again, senior fellow, National Review Institute, um, kind of the contributing editor, speaks a lot on law and order, um, legal matters. Um, fairly well regarded. You said Limbaugh. Uh, mentioned and referred to McCarthy yeah. a lot. But here's what I think is so interesting, and this is why um, we try to talk about things that others aren't talking about. Uh, I'll get in the weeds with you for a second. So five hours ago, there was a comment put up 
Um, they, you know, they offer a chance to comment on what Andy McCarthy said. Now, I don't know if McCarthy reads these comments or not. I know Rod Dreher does at the American Conservative because he responds at times to what some of the commenters um, say. And he challenges some or he agrees with some or he may, um, they may bounce things off one another. But it really is a, um, it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, for me, it's therapeutic. Because I, you got a smart guy, Andy McCarthy, writing about something, and then you've got, you know, subscribers, some smart, some not so smart, um, you know, offering their opinions. But, but here's why it's very interesting to me. Here's a, um, here's a circle glider five hours ago. Here's his comments to Andy McCarthy's article. Um, Andy McCarthy is opining dangerously far outside of his area of expertise. Mizell's opinion is solid on statutory interpretation ground. She uses text, history, tradition, and precedent. McCarthy instead invokes his feelings regarding contemporary understandings, and he utterly fails when it comes to recent comparable adverse rulings, uh, eviction, and mortgage moratoriums. If the CDC has the authority to make everyone wear masks under the guise of sanitation, then they certainly have the authority to prevent evictions and unsanitary squalor of subsequent homelessness. Indeed, under any principled invocation of McCarthy's analysis, the CDC would have the power to do just anything that can, could, uh, that could conceivably ameliorate disease. Whatever happened to our federal government of limited and enumerated powers? Um, it continues. McCarthy is also wrong with the issue of so-called nationwide or nationwide injunctions. On the express language of the Administrative Procedures Act, we've talked a little bit about that this morning, the ruling was not an injunction but a vacular. I would recommend McCarthy's study, Professor um, Mila Sahonitz, George Washington Law Review article, The Power to Vacate a Rule. McCarthy is unquestionably an expert on federal criminal procedure. Administrative law is an entirely different beast. Those are very responsible conversations wow. to have one with and another. And that was just a commenter on sure, the story. Sure, But wow. there's somebody who gives That's a John impressive. Brown. Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and when I read these stories, I always read the comments. I mean, at times, guys, th- there'll be a thousand comments, and I'll read a hundred, two hundred. I mean, I'll randomly, and I'll find, you know, you can tell where the hackish comments are, and you can tell where the more thoughtful souls are. Um and, and there, there's this battle brewing within. I think the National Review today is the epicenter of the confliction that the Republican Party has with itself. That there's the, um, I was thinking about this this morning, Nicole Wallace had a lot of things to say about this ruling. Nicole Wallace works at MSNBC. But Nicole Wallace was a senior advisor to John McCain, and she was the White House communication director for George W. Bush in 2008. Michael Steele was chairman of the RNC, the Republican National Committee. Joe Scarborough was a Republican office holder in the state of Florida. You see where I'm headed? Is Joe, has Joe, was Joe Scarborough ever really a Republican? Was Nicole Wallace ever really a Republican? Was Michael Steele ever really a Republican? How easy was it for Scarborough to take the money and run? How easy was it for Steele to take the fame and run? How easy was it for Nicole Wallace to say, I never meant anything I said when I was working for George W. Bush or uh, John McCain? I didn't mean any of that. Give me that job. Give me that desk. Point that camera at me, and I'll say whatever the hell you need me to say. I mean, that's who was leading our party. That's why we were failing miserably to address some of the ills of the world. We were not true to what we said we were. And some of these common, uh, some of these comments in the National Review take the National Review to task. The National Review prints something because look, that they're not pro-Trump, that they're not anti-Trump at every turn. 
But if you're talking about America first, you got to drag these people kicking and screaming, and they're still respected, almost revered voices in some circles of Republican orthodoxy. So that's, to me, when I read these comments, I mean, I feel like I have a decent understanding of the, I don't know, Rev, the, the, the point of inflection, the, the, the confliction between those who would still rather Nicole Wallace and Mitt Romney and jo- Michael Steele and Joe Scarborough dictate the terms and conditions of which we advance as a party. And then you've got others, the Peter Thiels of the world, the, the Donald Trumps of the world, the Ron DeSantis of the world, who have embraced not, not a less intellectual, but a more aggressive form of opposition to a very, very motivated Democrat and liberal wing of their party. Let's go to the phone. Matthew in Chirag. Good morning, Matthew. Good morning, guys. How y'all doing? Good to do it. How are you? I read a article or comment from one of the local news stations earlier this week, and uh, you know they seemed to uh, get everybody started, and I thought it was interesting. Somebody was talking about uh, the border crisis and a uh, lack of labor participation. And I asked the question, what's wrong with letting 14 and 15-year-olds work here in America? Because we're leaving a lot of kids, and it's rare now, but there's a lot of kids that would love to have a job, but they can't because laws or because society says you've got to be at least 16 and most uh, 18 at this point to work. And I never thought I could put the two together. But here's what I my response was when people started talking about child labor. And I will say this. I had a job, and when I say a job, I'm in a public job working at a grocery store at 14 years old. So I know a 14-year-old is plenty capable of doing it. But we have a society today that thinks it's all right for a 4-, 5-, 6-year-old to decide to change from a boy to a girl, but we don't think a 14- and 15-year-old can uh, work a job. And uh, I'll leave y'all with that, and I'll listen to the comments on the way to work. Thank Thank you, man. We appreciate that. You know, the the most bizarre Mm -hmm. part of all this liberal agenda, and a lot of it's bizarre to me. It's dangerous. It's scary. Um, Probably even more concerning is how many Americans have kind of signed up and saddled up and said, yeah, let's go this way. But, but, uh, you know, uh, bad policy is bad policy. Evil is evil. Uh, now, Now, when bad policy drifts off into the evil um, the diabolical, I don't know. I mean, you would have a judge. I would have a, you know, we, we'd all have BS meters. I mean, when does, when does, um, when does black turn to white? There's a lot of gray in there, but allowing a five or six year old kid to sign a legal and binding medical document for them to have a sex change. That's evil. I mean, that's not liberal. I'm sorry. That's not liberal thought. That's evil. I mean, that's maniacal that that's godless. And this country better address that, and 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 then here you go with an example. And if we're waiting on the Andy McCarthy's of the world to address it, they want to intellectualize the debate. There is no intellectual that debate doesn't deserve serious consideration. You need to call those people what they are. They're dangerous, evil people who are godless. And, and I'll say this: I, somebody listening to my voice may believe that a six-year-old kid should have a right to sign a medical and binding contract to have a sex change operation. If you believe that, you're evil. You're godless. I'm sorry. I mean, that, that's a personal insult. Take it for what it's worth. I, I don't believe many people listening to my voice can, can rationalize how we get um, to there. 
But, but you know, a 14-year-old working at a grocery store? Yeah. I mean, when I was a kid, most 14, 15-year-olds worked in a grocery store. I worked in a family business. I'm trying to think of when I started. Probably seventh, eighth grade, somewhere thereabout. Work a couple of three days during the summer. My dad would give me 20 bucks or 10 bucks or whatever it was. Thought I'd won the lottery. You know, at that age, in that time, I worked in a grocery bill. store at 16. I was bagging groceries. Yeah, I never worked in my brother worked in the grocery store because my dad didn't want us working together. You know, we were always together. I mean, it was kind of like my kids. I mean, my two boys are 17 months apart. My brother and I were 17 months apart. And um, we did everything together. And my father felt like, you know, you need a little separation of one another. So he'd go this way and I'd go that way. And my brother did work at the local IGA you know, in Pamplico. And I worked in the body business. And then I think the next summer we may have swapped off and I did something else. I can remember. I don't know how old I was. I was thinking about this the other day. We had a John Deere lawnmower. And it was kind of the prize jewel of the family. I mean, it really was. Um, I mean, it, it was a big deal. I would drive the John Deere because I was older than my brother. He would sit behind me facing the back of the lawnmower and hold the right, the push mower by the handle and kind of tilt it up on its two wheels, and we would go cut grass. I mean, that's what he – I don't have any idea how old we were. But, I mean, literally, I mean, I know I was – I mean, not, not of driving age. I can assure you of that. I mean, it's probably <laughs> 9 or 10 or 11 years old. But I was the older brother, so I got to drive the tractor. My brother would sit on the seat with his back to my back, and he would hold the push mower, and we'd go cut three or four or five yards. Now, was it a true business where you, as the entrepreneur, had to then share your money with the person who actually owned and paid for that John Deere lawnmower? I don't think we did. Well, I think, I think Daddy let us keep it all. That was you nice. Know, take the mower, and I don't tear it up. Take the mower and go <laughs> do what you got to do. And we drummed up about, I don't know, six or eight or ten yards, and we were in business. Well, there you go. As prop, I don't know, eight or nine or ten-year-olds. 843-661-0937 is our number back in a minute. The Protect Ohio Value Super PAC had $10 million deposited when J.D. Vance announced he was running for a, the Senate seat in Ohio, vacated by the retiring Rob Portman, uh, Republican Rob Portman. Uh, Josh Mandel, I think is the candidate at the Club for Growth, um, selected, chose. He's a statewide candidate, has run statewide in Ohio before. Um, it looked like a Trump endorsement. Was in the uh, was inevitable. It was on the way. Uh, it was heading his way. And JD Vance gets in the race. Peter Thiel puts ten million dollars. Um, and at the end of last week, they had three hundred thousand dollars left of the ten million dollars, and they spent the majority of the money um, convincing Ohioans that Vance does not dislike Trump. I mean, he said some things, uh, not so flattering things about the former president uh, in his days as a non-politician. But he's, um, I guess he's come to Jesus, and he's seen, he's seen the light, and now he wants to be an America firster, and he can't be an America firster. There's some questioning of why Vance so aggressively criticized Trump and some of the, um, some of his uh, promotion of the book Hillbilly Elegy, and he basically he didn't call Trump a fraud, but he said Trump has nothing in common with these people that you know he's counting on to get him elected. Uh, to the White House. There was a disconnect. He's a real estate developer from Manhattan. What does he know about a former factory worker, you know, in, in Columbus or in Cincinnati or in Cleveland, for that matter, and in the Rust Belt in particular? But um, but Teal puts $10 million in the bank. They spend $9.7 million of the $10 million convincing the voters in Ohio that Gibbons is saying that Vance is a fraud. He's not really an America firster. Um and it worked. I mean, it's worked. All that money has worked. They've, they've convinced the people in Ohio, the Republican primary voter, that Vance, you know, kind of regrets what he said early on, had a misread of some of what happened um, 
but they needed a $1.3 million ad buy to start tomorrow, Friday through, I think it may be next Friday, and um, and Teal put another $3.5 million. Um, dollars. Uh, that's pretty wild that a guy puts $10 million, they spend it all, um, they get to a point of having $300,000 left in the Super PAC. They want to do a $1.3 million ad buy. They need more money. And Teal says, how much do you need? And apparently somebody said 3.5, or maybe he said, you know, will 3.5 get us to the finish line? Um, there's no way Teal spends that money if polling shows that Vance can't win. There is no way in this world. They pull the plug. I've done all I can do. Uh, we came close, but no cigar. There is no way Peter Teal injects another $3.5 million unless he thinks J.D. Vance has a better-than-average chance of winning that Senate seat in Ohio. That will be a good day for all of us. Trust me, we need to be J.D. Vance fans. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. Hold the phones for just a second. It's Thursday morning. Reggie Armstrong is with us in the 7 o'clock hour every Thursday morning. Today is no different. Reggie, good morning. How are you? Doing well. Good morning, Ken. How about yourself? Doing well. Full disclosure, Reggie is not in the studio. He's over the phone. You can probably hear a little bit of um, um, less than great audio quality. But, um, Reggie, when I was young and I heard uh, the investment bond, in other words, uh, as an investment, there was a bond you could buy. It was very simple to me. U.S. savings bond. You buy a bond for X, you redeem it for X, uh, you hold it for an extended period of time. It makes a little money at, uh, based on the interest rate. But, but as I've gotten older... I've realized that bonds are much more complicated. You've got par, you've got yield, you've got municipal bonds, you've got government-issued bonds, you've got corporate bonds. Um, I'm not asking if the bond is a is still a stable and simple investment, but but in relation to stocks, if people choose to invest in bonds, what sorts of things do they need to be aware of, and and, and what sort of decisions do you help them make in the world of bond investing? Sure. Great question, Ken. And we, we've talked about bonds a little bit at uh, one of our prior segments uh, maybe a month or so ago. Um, and and the reason for even bringing it up is this is the worst start this year for the bond market in 40 years. The the bond index, uh, what's called the Bloomberg Barclay Bond Index, is down uh, almost 9%, uh, more than the stock market, S&P 500 right now. And that causes you know a lot of confusion, but we have to remember we've been since about 1980-81 we've been in a bond bull market with declining yields, which means prices rise. Um, if you go back to the 50s, between the 50s and 1980, we were in a rising interest rate environment, a bond. I guess you could sort of call it a bear market, uh, but they didn't do as well. But you still made money. Uh, the question is, did you make money after inflation? But, you know, we've discussed a little bit about the why, you know, how rising rates due to the expectation that Fed have to, is going to have to raise rates to fight inflation is one of the reasons the bond market is sold off. And that's fine and dandy to, to, to kind of intellectually put our arms around that. But investors own bonds because it's supposed to be the sleep easy at night money. You know what I mean, Ken? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's supposed to be the, 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 the hey, I, like you said, I buy the bond and I redeem it one day and I don't have to worry about it. But, you know, when you have them in your in your investment account or if you have a mutual fund that owns them, uh, you see these sort of temporary declines. Uh, they're asking, well, what do I do now? I've never seen this before, especially since, you know, it hasn't happened like this for about 40 years. And so I'll answer 
you know, uh, some, at least some gen- general advice, but let's talk about some positives that sometimes investors may forget about bonds. First, can when a bond is issued, you know, say it was issued in 2020 for a maturity in 2030, even if its value drops to rate movements, its price, unless the bond defaults, it comes back to par maturity. In other words, if it was issued at $100 a bond, even if it goes down to 85 when it matures at 2030, it's back to 100 unless you invested in a company that might go broke. So unlike for individual stocks, which can go down and stay down, individual bonds normally come back up to their value at maturity. So it's still a very different animal. Uh, Secondly, bonds continue to pay dividends. Um, Corporations are required to pay dividends to bondholders before they pay dividends to stockholders. And so you know, if interest rates rise and then they stabilize, you're going to continue to get those dividends. So some of that short-term pain does get to be eased a little bit. It doesn't make it fun, but it's not as horrible as perhaps it initially looks like. Third, actively managed bonds, meaning managers who are buying and selling funds and so forth, will often take advantage of this volatility, Ken, to increase the yield of the portfolio. In other words, they might sell a bond that's paying 2.2 and find one that's paying 2.9 to increase the the dividend, the the interest that's coming in to the portfolio. And then lastly, new money can be invested in higher paying bonds. So if somebody has extra money right now, they might be scared of this bond market, but new monies probably are going to get you higher yielding bonds than just three months ago. So uh, just to wrap up here, this has been a painful drop, may not yet be over. It is at extreme levels for such a short period of time, levels that historically have been a good time to invest in bonds. So here's my generic advice. Obviously, you've got to get one-on-one. Uh, one, probably selling at this point is not a good idea. Uh, you, you Doing it three, four months ago might have been. We, and again, not to toot our own horns, but we've got our weaknesses like any other investment manager. But you know, in very early January, we reduced our bond mix by about 40%. Uh, on purpose because of what we thought we saw coming. Should have done it maybe even a month earlier than that. Um, you know, secondly, rebalance portfolios and stocks, you know, they've recouped about half of their drop, but bonds have not. So if you rebalance, meaning if you normally have, you know, 30% in bonds and now it's 26% because of bonds have dropped and stocks have done okay, Maybe rebalance. We did that earlier this month, anyway. So we nibbled on the bonds a little bit, even though we had reduced their their, their number, as a way of taking advantage of the drop. Uh, you know, it's and then lastly, you, again, you may want to consider adding to bonds here. But again, you have to know what you're buying. Not all bonds are, are the same. They're not all, you know, uh, you know the double E bonds my uncle used to buy me when I was a little kid. You know, you know. $50 bond that he paid 25 for, you know, so it's, so it's a, it's a different animal, but investors would, should just, you know, like anything else, don't panic, make sure you know what you own and get a, get good advice to make sure you're, you're making the right moves would well, be my, my thoughts. Well explained, Reggie. So how can they communicate with you or a member of your team? Sure. We're, we're at armstrongwealth.com. You can check us out and get a little more details on us. And of course, give us a call at 843-292-9997. Thank you very much, Reggie. Have a good rest of the uh, week and weekend. All right. Thanks, Ken. Talk to you soon. Mm Mm-hmm.
843-661-0937 is our number. I want to talk a little business here, but I want to remind, I'm not remind, I want to let our listeners know, not reminding anybody of anything, because <laughs> this is the first time we've said it. Oh. Uh, you got to say something first to remind people That's true. of what you said earlier. Um, Congressman Tom Rice is calling in or scheduled to call in at about 8.15 this morning. Once again, Congressman Tom Rice scheduled to call in at about 8.15 uh, this morning. Uh We'll have a conversation about, I mean, we're going to have a, a, a very intense conversation at the debate uh, a couple of weeks from today. In fact, it's um, two weeks from today. We'll have a seventh congressional um, district debate. Republican primary voters will be invited. There's a limited number of tickets. Um, if you want to be there live and in living color, I would encourage you to make sure you get your tickets sooner than later. And from what I'm understanding, you can get the tickets at the Francis Marion University Performing Arts Center. Yep, and we'll have a link to uh, put your name on the list to get the tickets or, or get the tickets while they last. There will be a limited supply uh, on the Live 95 Facebook page, uh, actually the Live 95 website at live953.com uh, later today is what I'm told. So we'll link over to that. So at 8.15, Congressman Rice will be with us. Um, I want to, I got a 70-page lawsuit here. Uh, most of you have heard about the, um, the low-income housing project adjacent to one of our um, historic neighborhoods here in Florence and the uh, the brouhaha that developed as a result of, well, the um, there was a moratorium. I, I want to hold that because I, we don't have enough time in this segment to make sure we cover it, but I've got 70 pages of legal document in my hand um, that I got yesterday afternoon. I uh, list the plaintiffs and the, the defendants or the complaint. So this um, is an issue you you brought it up a number of weeks ago mm-hmm. when it uh, first became I guess out in the public and mm-hmm. so now the lawsuits are flying. Well, I mean, I mean the, the there... lawsuit is here. I mean, it's okay. an official. Uh, it's it's a suit against the county, uh, county no. council in particular is named, and uh, it's unlawful and discriminatory actions. I'll go into some of the uh, interesting points of the. I mean, I read uh, not all seventy pages. I probably read thirty five or forty. I don't know how to read some of these things now. I know where the nonsense is and where some of the blood guts and feathers are. So I got to some of the blood, guts, and feathers that I think you, our listeners, it's your county council. I mean, if you're living in Florence County, it's your county council being sued by a developer um, who says that they were um, unlawful and discriminatory in some of the actions they took. Um, that's why we have courts. That's why we have a, a judicial branch of government. But yeah, the developer's not going away. He thinks he's entitled to uh, build the project that he committed to and was um, he felt uh, being led to believe could come to uh, fruition. But uh, I want to read some of the language here. We'll do that in the next segment. But I do want to remind people, um, now I'm reminding, at 815, Congressman <laughs> Rice will be with us um, over the phone. Let's go to the phone. I like how you set that up. First, you couldn't remind because you hadn't announced it yet. So you announced it the first time, and then now you I can remind people. Now I can remind. And the point is is that uh, Congressman Rice will be on the air with us in about an hour there you from go. now. This morning. There you go. Marty in Florence. Hi, Marty. You're on the air. Good morning, guys. How are y'all? Hey, Marty. Ken, I got a question. Dave, how are you? Morning. Doing well, thanks. Uh, you were talking a while ago about, I'm I'm backing up on you, J.D. Vance got all this money for, mm-hmm. from, I don't remember the gentleman's name you said. Yeah, Peter Thiel. Peter Thiel, co-founder Peter of PayPal. Thiel. Yep. Okay. I thought there was a limit on how much you could give a candidate. There's a limit of what you can give the candidate, Marty, but the political action committee uh, professes to not coordinate with a the candidate. Therefore, the amount of money you can give the PAC, the political action committee, is unlimited. Oh, so I could, 
if I wanted Ken Ard, just say and wanted Ken Ard to run, I could give ten million dollars to the the Republican pack and they could convince you to run and spend all that money on you. They're supposed can, well, but that's right. You could uh, you could name the pack the smartest guy you've ever known, PAC. Um and yeah, that they could that money could support my efforts, but I'm supposed to not coordinate with that pack at all. Now we know better than that. I mean there's a yeah. lot of winking and nodding that goes on. JD Vance is well aware what Peter Till's doing. And I'm sure they've communicated indirectly on what the expectations are, but they're not supposed to, here I go with air quotes, coordinate one with another. Okay. I, I, when, when you were talking about that, I said, I, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but I'm not a butter knife either. There you go. And I'm, I'm thinking, how can this man come out and say, I'm giving $10 million to back J.D. Vance when I thought the, the Max campaign contributions twenty five hundred dollars. I think it was it was for me when I ran statewide it was thirty five hundred for the okay. for the house seats I think it's a thousand dollars for the uh, say Tom Rice's office if I'm not mistaken it's twenty four hundred dollars so there's different numbers for different levels of government but but the the political action committees have no limit I mean they can spend well obviously Teal spending what thirteen and a half million dollars trying to help a guy win a Senate seat in Ohio but once again the key word here is the layer of separation. There has to okay. exist. Now, once again, I don't buy that. You don't buy it. You're not crazy. You know they're no. coordinating and communicating. They just can't do it directly. In other words, Teal can't call J.D. Vance and say, J.D., how much more do you need? You know, that they can call an operative within that. Um, and I think the name of this pack is, well, I'll give you an example. Um, Save America, I predict, will probably spend somewhere between a half a million and $750,000 trying to get Russell Fry elected. He's a Trump-endorsed candidate. That's Trump's pack, That's right? Trump's super PAC. Save America, PAC, um, will probably spend somewhere north of a half million dollars trying to defeat Tom Rice. All right. I just I just needed some clarification on that. but There you I, go. I appreciate, I appreciate it, Ken. Y'all doing a super job. Thank you, Marty. Appreciate that, my man. All right. Uh, and once again, there, there's not to be any uh, communicating, coordinating, uh, winking and nodding. It's not really communicating <laughs> Uh, nor coordinating. Teal's done this in Arizona. It's interesting. Um, we, we I've talked about Teal for three years, four years, him coming on the scene and trying to be a, um, I was really in 15. I mean, he endorsed Trump in 15. He gave an enormous amount of money to the Trump effort to get elected uh, president. He spoke, spoke at the, the RNC. RNC. Yeah, and he basically said, I'm a gay man. Um, I'm a gay billionaire from Silicon Valley who happens to want Donald Trump to be president. And I think everybody looking at their market, I mean, looking at their program, nobody pays any attention to those preliminary speakers anyway. Middle of the day, late afternoon, I think Teal said, watch this. So he walks out in front of the um, the most conservative audience in the world and says, I'm a gay male, or I'm a gay billionaire from Silicon Valley who wants Donald Trump to be elected president. And I got to believe everybody said, they only just say, <laughs> say what? Who, who's that on the stage? <laughs> and then you dig a little deeper and you find that he, uh, he founded, he co-founded PayPal along with Elon Musk. He and Musk were business partners uh, as founders of PayPal. Musk, but Musk started a company that got bought early on for $300 million. I think he was 19 years old. He started some computer company, some sort of email servicing or routing company. And he sold that to one of the big boys for $300 million. Teal had done something similar to that, um, and they took the money they made from, now most of us at 19 would have gone home, 
or, or going surfing or going to the bar, whatever. You know, but Teal and, and Musk are wired a little bit differently than most. Um, and out of that came, you know, this um, this partnership that you got, invented PayPal, and they sold PayPal, and Teal went his way and Musk went their way. And they had kind of a um, uh, disagreement. I mean, it got personal. They didn't like one another for a long time. They didn't care much for one another. A little bit like the, the Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, you know, friends, mm-hmm. foes, back to friends again. Um, it's very interesting. I don't know. I mean, obviously, I wouldn't know this. I don't have any idea how much Teal and Musk communicate with one another. I mean, I would imagine they keep up with each other. You know, Musk has done some crazy, phenomenal things. Teal, a um, little less spectacular, but he's got Palantir. You know, um, it's a, it's a, a private equity firm. Um, both those guys have enormous amounts of money. Teal's not the richest guy on the planet, but he ain't worried about buying a cheese. Inflation isn't affecting his lifestyle, you got to believe. But but Teal's the guy that has really come uh, to the assistance of the Republican Party. Musk has never let it be known he has any interest at all in helping the Republican Party. Now, when he buys Twitter or when he partners with Apollo or uh, Morgan Stanley or whomever, I mean, I think there's some equity debt questions that are hanging out there that Musk is is trying to sort through with Morgan Stanley and Apollo, which is another big private equity firm. Um, it will be friendly to the conservative, but but I don't think Musk has ever um, and, and probably never will allow himself to say, you know, I'm for all the Republicans can all the Republican candidates. And in truthfulness, that the motivation for Teal, I think, when Trump is China, I mean, Teal is kind of a a zealot. When it comes to China, but he thinks China is the geopolitical adversary of our time. He thinks China has to be dealt with in a way we've never dealt with anybody uh, in our lifetime and including Russia. I mean, Teal Teal goes on and on and on about how more um, economically equipped China is and how we've kind of sold our soul to China. We never sold our soul to Russia, right? I mean, they, they were a geopolitical adversary, but it was who has the most nuclear armaments. I mean, we always felt economically they were not a third world country, but, but nowhere near um, our rival. China's a different animal. Um, Fred Smith of, of, of FedEx, CEO and founder of FedEx, was on Brett Baer's show last night, and they were talking about supply chains, and, and he's worried uh, about what's going to happen with all these quarantines and lockdowns in China because his word's not mine. China manufactures, uh, China consists of 27% of all the global manufacturing. I mean, get your arms around that, guys. 27% of all the manufacturing done in the world is done in China. And they're having this um, just kind of an outbreak, and, and we don't know what to believe when you – I mean, you've seen some of the visuals. I don't know how many of you have seen this or not, but um, th- there are pictures of cats and dogs being slaughtered. In other words, the owner gets um, taken, removed from the home, carried to basically a – they call it a, a segregation center. It's a prison is what it is. If you are found to test positive for COVID, they basically put you in prison. If you leave a cat or a dog, nobody cares for the cat or dog. They just kill it. I mean, it's, it's, it's animal after animal after animal after animal. I mean, it's, it's thousands. I mean, it may be hundreds of thousands of cats and dogs that have been killed in China probably in the last month or so. And they've got this, um, this task force, so to speak, that travels around these, um, these heavily populated cities in, in China and just kills the animals that are left behind once these people are, you know, taken away or evacuated from their homes. This is sad. I mean, it's, it's unbelievably sad. But a lot of Teal's motivation is, is very single-focused. I mean, it's China. China is 
um, the bad guy. I mean, if, if there is a, a threat to American superiority and, and the American way of life, it's China. And when Trump began to speak in those terms, Teal became uh, very supportive of that. I don't want to say one-trick pony, uh, one-issue voter, but, but it is kind of. I mean, when it comes to Peter Teal, it's China. China, China, China. Take a break. Back in a minute. I do want to get to this lawsuit in just a second. I want to touch on this real quick. Talking about Twitter and Elon Musk a second ago. Um, you know, the algorithms, the moderators. You don't know. I don't know. It's like a Seinfeld episode. They do it, though, Jerry. I mean, they, you know they have these algorithms. You know they have these moderator requirements. You know that they skew uh, the algorithms um, in favor of the liberals. 9,000 politically engaged Twitter accounts were um, monitored in October of 2020 a month before the election, they did it 50-50, 4,500 um, conservative Twitter accounts. Historically, they did, you know, retweeted. And I mean, they, you could easily see these are conservatives. They did 4,500 liberal accounts. You could easily see that they were liberal. This is the math, uh, MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. They kind of specialize in statistics and analysis and math. So the 9,000 politically engaged or politically um, uh, motivated Twitter accounts from October of 2020 to June of 2021, 60, excuse me, 36% of the Republican accounts were either censored or deplatformed. Only about 6% of the Democrat accounts were um, were deplatformed or censored. So it's I'm obvious. Shocked. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, MIT is not looking for uh, a way to do conservatives a favor. I can assure you with that. <laughs> I mean, it's academia. It's the height of academia. It's uh, elite academia. Um, but, but the words were COVID, Hunter Biden, biological sex, and energy prices. Th- those were the words that they kind of scoured for, and they believed those were the words. Anything that had to do with COVID, Hunter Biden, biological sex, or energy prices was, uh, was censored. Hmm. Now, um, we know the big factor in all of that. Remember the month before and then the five months after, six-month period of time, it was election. You know, the big lie. The election was stolen. And um, so so 36% of all Republican accounts of the 4,500 were censored or deplatformed by their, and I'm talking about MIT's algorithm, I would imagine, and then only 6% of the Democrats. So, yes, I mean, surprise, surprise, surprise. Twitter censors at a much higher rate conservative voices and t- uh, tweets than they do uh, those on the left. And maybe Elon will do something well, about it. Mean, we hope so. We certainly do. Uh, <laughs> it's he's, it's well, weird that he's our only well, hope. He's our cowboy. I mean, whether he's conservative or not, doesn't matter. He is on this particular situation. He's the only hope we've got. If we're going to affect change at Twitter, I'm not going to do it. You're not going to do it. I can yell and scream and raise hell to the cows come home. I don't have 50 billion bucks laying around. He does. And he could buy it. He can address the algorithms and the moderators. And maybe, just maybe, Twitter will be a social media site that allows honest debate and conversations to be had. Let's go to the phone. Breeze is next. Hi, Breeze. You know, I think any corporation that bag old manufactures their goods in China is committing treason. And don't tell me it's free trade because it's not free trade. It's slave trade. I'll tell you two other interesting things, though, Ken. Um, that Senate legislative um, you know, thing to do every year in Columbia, and, you know, get back to Tom Rice and him opposing Trump and um, you know, voting for that. Well, Nancy Mace is a Senate grad. 
that the conservative Senator Grads are kind of against her because of some of her votes against Trump and so forth. But I had a friend of mine kind of do an informal poll, you know him, and uh, he said, ironically enough, it's about a 50-50 split. So, so at least half of these federal guys are willing to vote for Nancy Mace, either because she's a federal grad or because uh, they just don't give that big of a crap about Trump. You know, so, uh, and then another observation, I had a client of mine just went up to Washington, D.C., and he's a accountant, very, you know, he's not one to exaggerate. And he said that fully 75 to 80 percent of the people in Washington, D.C. are still wearing masks. And you have to ask yourself, do they really think they work? And then now I see that Marjorie Taylor Greene, the state of Georgia, is going to try to prohibit her for running for re-election because of her comments she made about January 6th, where she called them patriots and so forth. Well, you know, I think what she needs to do is stick to her guns and say, you're damn right, every one of them there was a patriot, except for the daggone FBI agents that were stirring up the daggone um, to stir up the riot. Those were the daggone traitors to this country. And yes, the damn election was stolen. And that would be to where I would damn it is. I tell them all to kiss my butt. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate that. I believe he would. I, I really believe that. You know, talking about Nancy Mace and some of these other um, th- these candidates that uh, are running for re-election or trying to get elected in Republican House seats and Senate seats, and I guess all over all over America. Here's what I have found in my informal research, my informal survey: the the only reason that the Trump crowd has different degrees. I mean, you've got the 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 Trump um, zealot. Uh, you've got others who are, okay, I mean, I like that and I didn't like this. I like some of That's the great miscalculation that, that America's making about the Trump voter. I mean, the Trump voter understands what they're getting. I mean, it's not like we're surprised when we find out he may have said something 25 years ago or had a business deal go south or, or somebody stiffed him or he stiffed somebody. I mean, that's baked into the cake. We all knew that. We knew we weren't getting St. Peter. Or, or the Pope. I mean, we, I'd be a bad comparison today. Um, Pope's a fairly liberal guy right now. Um, if you ask members of the Catholic Church, they may disagree with that. But but here, here's what I believe, and here's where I believe it boils down. Those who support Trump, but not unequivocally. In other words, I'm not going to be loyal. If, if, if you demand of me, I mean, in other words, if you will, Trump walks into a, into a room, and there there's a room full of candidates, and he says, who will be loyal to me in, a, in, in pronouncing the election was stolen? And three people don't raise their hands. 20 do and three don't. He throw those three out of the room. It looks to me like the Trump endorsement almost requires a, an allegiance or loyalty to the election was stolen. Now, I've said it. I'll say it again. I think the election was stolen. I think they stole the election fair and square. I think it was ingenious what Mark Zuckerberg did, the $450 million that he funneled through the American Center for Tech and Civic Live that ended up in these counties that we had unbelievable out turn, um, uh, turnouts. I mean, I think that's, I mean, I think that's stealing the election. I don't think public money, or excuse me, private money to turn into public money via an election commission and that um, uh, operation turnout 
was funded by the American Center for Tech and Civic Life, but it was funded by Mark Zuckerberg's enormous personal wealth. To me, that's cheating. To me, that's stealing an election. That's robbing um, the, the the sincere outcome. And, I, and I'll go to these. Remember the 91 nursing homes in Wisconsin that had a 95% or better um, voting turnout? Mm-hmm. I mean, nobody believes that's true. Nobody, in listening to my voice, can honestly believe that 91 counties in Democrat precincts all over Wisconsin had a 95% turnout of senior citizens living in senior homes. Nobody buys that. I mean, a, a Democrat, a liberal Democrat knows better than that. But there's nothing illegal about what they did. I mean, you can talk about we've not proven that anything was illegal. We've got a lot of statistical anomalies. We got a lot of questions that never got answered. The Trump did, uh, legal team did him a great disservice in the way they argued. Remember um, Rudy Giuliani and uh, Powell, City Powell? Sydney. You know, I mean, th- there was some Guatemalan army grew or you know i don't i mean it got it was real bizarre i mean it made no sense it was not coherent at all but you know something doesn't smell right i mean we'll always question what happened in 20 in 2020 and i you know i don't believe for a second joe biden got 81 legitimate uh 81 million legitimate votes i mean you can't convince me of that there's no way i'll ever be convinced of that but i'm not sure that we can prove things um, that, that we suspect. And by that, I mean it's not illegal. I mean, it is in some states now, but in, 20, in 2020, it was not illegal to give grants to election commissions all over this country to help them with voter turnout. I mean, that, that's not illegal. I, I read somewhere the other day in Georgia that, that the grant given, remember when we read the minutes from the Fulton County Election Commission? I mean, that was my aha moment. Mm-hmm. I mean, I came in here one morning. I said, Rev, I've got it figured out. He said, what do you mean? I said, the Georgia Election Commission was given about $13 million in grants. Um, and with the money, they went and bought vans and buses and uh, they transported people to the election. I mean, election commissions don't do that. Now, the, 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 the unconstitutionality, I guess, which is Ill, an, an illegality, is when... Um, the the executives of certain states usurp the authority of the legislative branch. The legislature of all these said and several states is responsible for conducting, controlling, commanding uh, the goings on of an election. So yes, I mean that that was illegal. But the Trump team did such a lousy job in arguing that point. Fast forward to today, and Nan- let's use Nancy Mace as a, as an example. Nancy Mace will not say the election was stolen. And when someone does not say the election was stolen, they don't receive uh, the loyalty from Trump. It's kind of a litmus test with him. Uh, If I endorse you, you've got to convince me that you believe the election was stolen. I mean, that's not 100% of the time, but it seems to be kind of a a prerequisite for you getting his support is you having to agree that the election was stolen. And I want to say this. I'll go over the record again. I think the election was stolen. I think the election was stolen fair and square. And, and I believe the more we talk about the election was stolen, the less likely we are going to be successful in the 2022 midterms. That, that's, that's the point. I think you can be both. I don't think they have to be mutually exclusive of one another. The problem with Trump right now, the biggest anchor and, and the biggest potential problem we have with Trump is he's going to make the 22 midterms a referendum on the 2020 presidential election, and that's nonsense. 
I mean, you can't do that. Voters, by and large, and I'm talking about independent, um, not, you know, not rigid conservatives or rigid liberals, voters, by and large, want to look ahead. They want to be optimistic. They want to have a vision, a visionary candidate. They want to be told, um, inspired by, by some aspirational candidate that I given me, give me the chance that I'll make this district better. Give me the chance and I'll go to Washington and work on your behalf. I mean, it, it's cliched, but, but it's the way campaigns are run and polling clearly shows that looking back hardly ever works. Trump can believe he was jobbed. I believe he was jobbed, but I think at some point in time, that's got to be a part of our history, and we've got to kind of present and propose new arguments, new debates, new priorities, new agenda items, and, and, and not get hung up on what happened in 2020. What we need to make sure of is it never happens again. I mean, that, that is the resolve, I think, required of the Republican Party. What can we do to make sure what happened in 2020 never happens again? How can the senior home voting of residents in Wisconsin go from the historical average of about 62, 3, 4, 5% to 95% or better. I mean, the absurdity of that. And I can give anecdotal examples. I mean, there, there's a lady, uh, a 51-year-old gentleman shows up at a nursing home in Milwaukee County and says, the records show my mom voted. And the, the nursing home worker says, well, I don't know. He says, well, I do. Here's the record. Shows the record of the mom voting. My mom doesn't know me. My mom has not known me for five years. My mom is uh, four years in Alzheimer's. She doesn't know my name. She doesn't know who I am when I come to see her. And, and she voted? I mean, we know that to be true. I mean, this, that, that happened. I mean, there's no question about that. Um, who's guilty? Don't know. But we can't let it happen again. The, the two things we've got to do is be really, really guarded about making sure those sorts of things don't happen again, but not allowing that to be the centerpiece of the 22 presidential, excuse me, the 22 midterm uh, elections. Let's take a break. We'll be back in a minute. We don't have time, nor would I bore you with 70 pages of a lawsuit, but there's a lot of uh, legally and mumbo jumbo. And he said, she said, but the, um, remember the housing development, the low income housing development, the tax credit development, that was to be built uh, on a, a piece of property, what we call a, a zoning donut. It was not a zoned piece of property. Everything around it was zoned. Um, the developer found the piece of property, uh, put together a model. Um, the model was to be built behind the Harris Teeter at Five Points. It's kind of the property I'm talking about here. And the, the residents of the adjacent neighborhoods got real vocal and real united and um, opposed. Uh, well, now there's a lawsuit as a result of that, but it's not um, it's not your typical lawsuit. Um, it actually lists the members of Florence. It's got uh, Florence County, South Carolina, and then it's got the council members minus one member of the council, and then John Doe's one through 15. Um, and it's basically violation of the Housing Act of 1968. Once again, I'll spare you uh, a lot of the legal mumbo jumbo, unlawful and discriminatory, uh, discriminatory actions. I'll read the one paragraph that I think you'd find interesting. Why should you be interesting? It's your county council. I mean, it's the people that you elect to go to the county and conduct or transact uh, business on your behalf. Here's the one paragraph that I think um, really speaks to the gist of the, uh, of the uh, lawsuit. Uh, this obstruction prevents plaintiffs from using federal low-income housing tax credits and South Carolina state housing tax credits that have been awarded, uh, totaling $17,890,344,000. These credits are issued 
by the South Carolina Housing Finance and Development Authority, uh, specifically for the development of the Jezamine. If the illegal conduct of defendants is not rectified, the discriminatory aims of defendants will be achieved by blocking the Jezamine. They will have a disparate impact upon low-income African-American families with children in Florence County who are in need of quality, affordable housing. Additionally, defendants' illegal, improper, discriminatory actions will prevent plaintiff from de- developing and owning the Jasmine, a development that would have a completed value of seventy—excuse me, fifteen million seven hundred fifty thousand um, dollars. I'm a business guy. I mean, I get the um, the racism part of this. I get the the country club residents. Some I mean, of they're referred to as. Uh, hold on a second. Let me make sure I get this right. Don't want to miss uh, Florence Country Club, Country Club Estates, Country Club Florist, and um, Country Club Residents. I would imagine that is John Doe as part of the lawsuit. This is interesting to me. Um, they have been awarded tax credits of $17,890,344. The development is $15,750,000. So the tax credits awarded exceed the price of the project. Now, now stick with me for a second because there's another page to this. There's another chapter of this story. Um the plaintiffs have received an equity commitment from RBC Community Investments of 82.2 cent for federal tax credits. That would be the redemption rate. For every dollar in tax credits, you're going to get 82 cent um, because somebody's got to make a buck on, you know, not paying the full freight on their taxes. And then 65 cent for state taxes uh, for a total financial contribution of $13,171,027. Uh, so the project is uh, $15,570,000. The low-income tax credits come to $17,890,000. The redemption of the credits comes to $13,171,000. So for a uh, project that is going to cost $15,750,000, tax credits funds $13 million of the $15 million. That is a that that is a very lucrative business model. I mean that that is an Sounds unbelievably like uh, lucrative business model when the project is fifteen million and you receive thirteen. And I'm talking about whether well, the the tax credits are seventeen million, but the redemption value is only about thirteen million. Um, wow. I mean that that's. I mean I've done some tax credit deals. Never one done or never done one uh, that was that lucrative. But there's a lawsuit. It's a seventy page document. Um, our county council members minus one is listed as plaintiffs. Um, the complaint is basically um, a violation of the Fair Housing Act of 1868. And uh, there's a moratorium and there's donut hole zoning and uh, fire hydrants and all these other sorts of things will rear their head. But it's a very intriguing and interesting case. And I think the county loses. I mean, I really, I, I looked at the legally, I mean, I've, I, I just think there's no way the county can win this. Take a break. Back in a minute. Hour number three, 843-661-0937. Uh, Congressman Tom Rice scheduled to call in at about 815, somewhere thereabout. Um, but this is kind of an interesting story. You're, you're kind of um, intrigued. I'm very intrigued. So you're talking about this lawsuit, and I've learned just a little bit about how these tax credit things work. Okay. By listening to you talk over the years, you mm-hmm. brought them up and explained them a few times on the air. Um, but it sounds to me when you, the numbers you just quoted that, that are, are 
that are laid out in well, this. But these in, are the numbers in the lawsuit. These aren't my numbers. Right. These aren't made up numbers. These aren't me estimating or guessing or or, or kind of um, speculating. But am, these am are I numbers wrong? in the lawsuit. Am I wrong? It sounds like almost the entire cost of the project is covered by tax credits. Before you get the haircut on uh, redeeming uh, and redeeming the credits, it's more. Uh, I didn't know that. I mean, that's news to me. I, I, I you know, I know work? a little bit about how tax credits work. I mean, they well, try what a deal for somebody. They they try to basically uh, subsidize certain markets that are underfunded, or they anticipate to be underfunded. Uh, the Fair Housing Act of eighteen, excuse me, of nineteen sixty eight. It really goes back to the some of the um, Civil Rights Act of eighteen seventy one, post Civil War. Um, you know, one government program morphs into another, uh, morphs into another, turns into another. Uh, a million dollar budget becomes a billion dollar budget, becomes a twenty billion dollar budget. Uh, Forty bureaucrats work in the office, and then four hundred bureaucrats work in the office. That's just the nature of government. And um, and I don't have a dog in this fight. I mean, I honestly don't. I just think as someone, because um, we've said many many times over the airwaves, the news is not being covered, and we're going to have to do a better job of um, uh, dedicating ourselves to covering. Uh, some of this news, and this is very newsworthy. I mean, this is a lawsuit against the Florence County Council um, filed by the guy that was, or the company that was going to develop this uh, this low-income housing project. Uh, the people got real motivated. They got real, uh, uh, what am I trying to say here? That they, they gathered together, they united the energy, and they opposed uh, the development. And then the county council um, basically intervened. Um, kind of at the last minute, I went back and looked at some of the language. And um, But for the action of the defendants, the Jezamine would be constructed. Plaintiffs either have or would have successfully obtained all approvals, permits, and financing necessary. Um, however, the illegal adoption of Florence County Ordinance Number 17-2021-22, the illegal moratorium, is how they um, argue this. I try to run down somebody from the county to find out exactly what language is included in the moratorium. But in essence, it was a moratorium to stop development in unzoned donut holes. Uh, how did we get there? Don't have any idea. I mean, I don't have any idea how some property is owned and in the middle of all the zoned property, there's a piece of unzoned property. But, you know, the South in particular has a lot of examples of that. So this company finds a piece of property that's unzoned. They buy the property, or I probably have an option on the property. Um, they want to develop this low-income housing development because that's what they do. I mean, they do this all over the country. I think they've got multiple um, developments and thousands of units, uh, and they've done a good job of managing their business. But, but you know, the revelation to me, I mean, I understand, I understand the lawsuit. You know, the constituency gets mad. The constituency pleads for council to do something. Council, instead of looking out for an out-of-town developer, looks out for the people who live here. I mean, I think we all understand that. That's, you know, all politics are local. So nobody's surprised by any of that. I mean, if you're going to, if you're a county council member, um, your loyalties, do your loyalties lie with, you know, a developer from out of town or with the Florence Country Club or the Country Club Estate Citizens and Residents or the, the Country Club Forest Residents? Um, that's all politics are local. Uh, but there's a legality here, and the company is arguing that they've done everything they were supposed to do in following the letter of the law, and after they had all this work done, after they had um, successfully or were successfully obtaining uh, the approvals and permits and financing, uh, the county council intervened in illegal fashion. That's kind of the argument 
they're making that this moratorium. Um, now, obviously, they'll make it about race and they'll make it about, you know, um, wealthy people not wanting, you know, low-income people living near them. Uh, the Obama administration basically argued for this. We're going to diversify neighborhoods. Well, here's an example of what Obama meant when he said we're going to diversify neighborhoods. Uh, one of the more established residential areas of Florence is going to be infiltrated by people who probably couldn't afford to live there if we didn't have low-income housing. Uh, there's a yin and a yang to this. There's two sides to this coin. But to your point, and it was um, kind of revealing to me when I looked at the math, because that's where you were like, wow. Yeah. Uh, so so the, the total project to make sure is going to have a value of $15.75 million. They're receiving tax credits of $17.89 million once they redeem the credits. By redeeming, I mean... There, there, there are syndication operations out there that buy tax credits. I mean, if you're a company like, let's say you're, you're Apple and you have an enormous tax burden, it may not be a big percentage, but it's an enormous burden nonetheless, then you buy these credits. So instead of paying a dollar for dollar on taxes, you pay at the federal level $82 or $0.82 cent per dollar uh, at the state level $0.65. Cent. So the, um, once they redeemed the $17,890,000 worth of credits, they were going to receive in liquidity, in cash, $13,171,000. So tax credits are paying $13.171 million of the $15.75 million uh, project costs. That's a, that's a pretty sweet deal mm-hmm. as far as I'm concerned. Sounds like it. I mean, I, I would imagined, I mean, I would have imagined that number would have been somewhere around 50%. Now, now once again, these are, these are not my numbers. I mean, I'm reading verbatim from the 70-page document that um, someone sent me yesterday about this um, this lawsuit that the county is now, is now um, absolutely involved in. Let's go to the phone. Here's Rodney in Florence. Hi, Rodney. Hey, man. I just caught the tail end of this. Now, was that lawsuit filed in federal court? That lawsuit is filed in the District Court of South Carolina Florence Division. Okay. God love them. That's a mess. <laughs> don't have any idea there, Rodney. Right, off the air. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. I mean, the one look. I, I don't have a dog in this fight. Please understand. I'm not a member of county council. Um, I know the developer. I know the the county council member. I mean, this is not. Once again, I got to say this. Seems like I need a recording, Mike. We have to do a, a recording <laughs> of this. This is not personal with me, but it is very uh, worthy of consideration. It's news. Newsworthy. I mean, it's absolute news. It's big news to be honest with you. When, when the County is involved in a lawsuit of this magnitude, it's a big deal. And I asked Rev a second ago, I said, go to our local, um, news affiliate and see if there's a story there or not. There is not. Now, now this news probably is just dropped. I mean, I don't know when the suit was filed. Uh, let's see what date it is. I got my numbers here covered up. Cover for me one second, Rev. I want to make sure I get this. Uh, okay. Date filed 415. So today is the 21st. It's nearly a week old. Um, I don't plunder around in that world, but others do. And someone sent me this document, this lawsuit, because I guess we've uh, professessed to do a better job of covering the news. And this is um, newsworthy. Heard about it but, but once again, you'll hear things like the federal low-income housing tax credit. You'll hear um, the the violation of fair housing act of 18 excuse me of 1968 and the um the civil rights act of 1871 you'll hear a lot about privileged white people don't want you know impoverished black people or minorities living near them but there'll be a lot of narratives here and um and we'll let the dust settle where the dust settles uh i think it's interesting and newsworthy 
that the county is involved in a lawsuit um, of an out-of-town out developer that found a piece of property. I think the developer has followed every law. I, I think the, the, the county got real aggressive in trying to uh, protect its citizens, and, and the courts will say what is right and what's wrong. I mean, it's not, you know, I'm not going to judge it. I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not on a jury. I'm not a judge. I'm not in the circuit court. I'm not a lawyer by any stretch of the imagination. But when I read the 70-page document, there were, there were three or four things that stuck out in my mind. I guess the argument will be, um, was, the, uh, was the moratorium, the emergency moratorium, was it legal or not? I mean, when you really think about all the, uh, the minutiae, all the, the, the abstractness of things we don't know, I guess at the end of the day, we'll find out whether or not um, the adopting of Florence County Ordinance 17-2021-22, which is uh, being referred to in the lawsuit as an illegal moratorium, was it illegal or was it legal? That, that's kind of where I think this, um, this case will be hashed out, but, but I don't have a dog in that fight. I just felt that when I read as a business person, once again, I'm not a lawyer, I'm a business person. As a business person, it looked like a pretty lucrative opportunity when you see the amount of tax credits and the redemption value of the tax credits to the total cost of the project. Um, let's shift gears. I think we have with us on the phone Congressman Tom Ross. Congressman, how are you? I'm great, Ken. How are you? We are doing well. Good to have you on the air with us, sir. We'll see you a couple of weeks from um, from today in our debate at the FMU Performing Arts Center. But you're making a lot Look of news. Well, I mean, you're making a lot of news traveling around the district and um, and touting your record. So I'll get out of the way and let you and let you tell our listeners what you've been up to and why you think you're worthy of another term. All right. You know, uh, I've been all around the district the last couple of weeks at, uh, while we're not in Washington and just seeing people as part of my job and letting them know that I care about them and want to hear about their concerns and uh, talking about, you know, our track record and what we've done. And when I ran in, in 2012, took office in 2013, people forget, but, uh, but times were tough on the Grand Strand and PD. And uh, the eight counties I've got, Georgetown and Orion on the coast, Marion, Marlboro, Chesterfield, following North Carolina line and coming back Darlington and Florence. The best unemployment rate in the eight was Florence at 9.8. Everywhere else was, Ori was 12.8. Uh, Darlington was over 12. Uh, Marlboro was the highest at 16.8. And uh, and Marion County, poorest county in the state, was uh, a 16.3% unemployment. And I said I, my three top issues were jobs, jobs, jobs. And I thought, I told people then, I went back and looked at one of my old speeches the other day. And I said, the only thing holding us back is the government has a noose around the neck of our economy. And all we got to do is make it competitive. And if we do that, uh, the American worker can compete with anybody. And I, try, I actually, when I got to Congress, I went to the Obama White House and tried to get them to do a bipartisan uh, American competitiveness summit with uh, John Boehner to show that we could find agreement and, and put forth uh, laws that would make our economy competitive in the world and allow American jobs to compete, uh, American workers to compete, and stop the offshoring. We had 4,700 American companies move overseas in the 10 years before that. Didn't make a whole lot of pro progress with the Obama administration, but we started working on uh, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. We didn't call it that, but we had the framework done before Donald Trump was ever the nominee for the Republican uh, uh uh, presidency and uh, Paul Ryan and and, and uh, Kevin Brady, uh, chairman of Ways and Means, were spearheading that. I was on Ways and Means and helping them draft it. 
And, you know, we had to make the multinationals competitive in the world so we could stop the offshoring. But I, I was sitting in that room and I said, look, back in, in on the Grand Strand as a tax lawyer, I didn't represent GM and IBM and GE. I represented the guy who was starting his plumbing business and the young lady doctor coming out of medical school starting up her practice and needed to buy equipment and the guy who was forming a ho- uh, starting a hotel on the oceanfront and a guy who was a lady who was starting a restaurant and and those people if you cut taxes for the multinationals and make them competitive in the world which we need to do you got to cut taxes for the small businesses as well so you know uh, in 25 years of practicing tax law I formed a thousand companies and maybe five of those were C corporations the rest of them were pass-throughs LLCs, partnerships, and S-Corps. And that pass-through deduction, that 20% deduction that people get now uh, as a result of the tax cuts and job tax, because I was sitting in that room. And I'm so proud of the effect that it's had on our economy. Now, uh, uh, when we uh, started the new process on NAFTA 50 years ago, the PD and the Grand Strand, the Grand Strand has always been tourism, but the PD was textiles and tobacco. And everybody knows what happened to tobacco. But when NAFTA hit and Ross Perot was right, the giant sucking sound, all those jobs left. And we had to rebalance NAFTA. And uh, when, when uh, Donald Trump's trade representative, Bob Whitehiser, was coming in and making hard decisions that affect a lot of districts around the country, I backed him up, where a lot of congressmen, Republican and Democrat, fought him on doing a lot of these trade changes because their districts were vested in that. And I was on the delegation because I was on the trade subcommittee on ways and means that went to Mexico City to negotiate with Mexican legislators and grease the skids for Bob Whitehiser and to uh, Montreal. We didn't go to Toronto. We went to Montreal to negotiate with Canadian legislators. We got a new NAFTA across the line. Those two things, I think, were Donald Trump's biggest wins, that and getting American energy independence. Those two things were Donald Trump's biggest wins, and I was in the middle of both of them. And then uh, 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 one other thing happened here on the PD that was a game changer because those three counties, Marion, Dillon, Marlboro, for 50 years, they didn't have a chance. I mean, they didn't, they did not have any opportunity. And people always complain and call it the corridor of shame. It infuriates me, but nobody ever does anything about it. And we got the Dillon Inland Port located right between those three very poor counties. And did I do any of that by myself? Absolutely not. Hugh Levin played a huge part in that. But I played a part in all of it, in advocating for the location of that uh, inland port in Dillon. And what was the result of it? Two years after we got the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act in and all that other stuff, the uh, the unemployment rate in Florence County was below 4%, Horry County below 4%. Uh, Marion County, South Carolina, hit <laughs> hit 3.8% unemployment. It went from 163 to 3.8. I, I didn't even think that was possible. And, you know, I went there to, to give everybody a shot at the American dream. And I didn't just talk about it. I delivered on it. And it, not just jobs, just not just the unemployment rate. Wages, for the first time, were rising at over 3% rate. In in four years, wages went up uh, 30%. Poverty, poverty. We got so many people, 30% of the people were living in poverty in Marion, Dillon, and Marlboro. Poverty dropped by 25%. And there's nothing that I have done that I am more proud of than that. Tax reform, fair trade, farm bill. Ken, I got to tell you, you know, my, my conservative rating in Congress 
American Conservative Union rates me at 87, which would be, I mean, that's very conservative. I'm in the top 20% of congressmen. I would be the highest, most conservative in most states in the country, but not in South Carolina. I mean, you got to have a, being very conservative is important as a legislator in South Carolina. Some of our legislators have 95% ratings from ACU. Now, what separates me from those guys? Why am I 87 and they're 95? It's because I vote for three things that they don't vote for or only vote for intermittently. I vote for the farm bill. Why? Because the PD grows two-thirds of the row crops in South Carolina. I vote for flood insurance. I hope I don't have to explain to people why I would do that. But our whole district is a floodplain. And the PD and the Grand Strand both have been victims of five years, and so I'm going to vote for the flood insurance program. And I vote for disaster mitigation because across the PD, the poorest of the poor lost everything they had in three storms in five years, and I asked for disaster mitigation, uh, a disaster uh, funds. And when I did that in three years, and when other people make reasonable requests for disaster mitigation, I feel like a hypocrite if I don't vote for it. So those three things separate me from the other folks. And I always say, okay, guys, if you think I should be a 95 instead of an 87, which one of those three would you not have me vote for? And I've yet to have anybody answer me on that. Uh, I think, I, you know, and, and look at, I mean, we've gotten millions, hundreds of millions of dollars of grants for economic development and schools and disaster recovery, disaster mitigation, new roads, and all kind of stuff. So I'm real proud of what I got done. And one other thing that I don't point out enough, and people always tell me I need to point out, you know, I'm the ranking member now. I'll be the chairman when we take the uh, uh, House back in in uh, November on the Oversight Committee on Ways and Means, which I have oversight o- over all the federal agencies we have jurisdiction over, including the IRS and Social Security and, and others. And uh, uh, I'm the first person from South Carolina on the Ways and Means Committee since Carol Campbell 40 years ago. And I, I'm the second person from South Carolina on Ways and Means since the Civil War. Pretty fascinating. Uh, I think they wanted to punish South Carolina for a while there, but I'm the second one on Ways and Means from South Carolina since the Civil War. I'm on the Problem Solvers Caucus. It's 18, uh, 28 Democrats and 28 Republicans. I know that a lot of people don't like the fact that I would work across the aisle, but I want to get things done. I don't want to just go up and throw bombs and throw flames. And uh, I, I think one of the problems we have is that leadership on both sides of the aisle is too concerned about politics and less concerned about actually solving problems. And it's one of the factors that rips America apart, and I'm sick of that. What I want to do is I want to get us to where we can build some consensus. I think our government is designed to uh, to build consensus, that we have to make a law. It should be hard to make a law, and that we should move things forward for the American people. And we've done an awful lot, and I'm I'm proud of it. Congressman, you're talking uh, about your record. I want to interrupt you one second, if you don't mind, and just get okay. your take on this. We, um, yeah. I mean, COVID forced the hand of a lot of politicians. I mean, I mean, I'll admit I was philosophically conf- conflicted on the role of government, the responsibility of government when you have such a dire circumstance. Um, but it did create hyperinflation. I mean, most of us saw this coming. Anybody that understands supply and demand and, and economic theories and the Keynesian would believe that when government creates out of thin air this much fiat currency, there's going to be a consequence at some point in time. From your perspective, what can we do to deal with or negotiate the very difficult waters of what I'd call an onerous tax on uh, the, those who don't have very much disp- disposable income, uh, that big in inflation? Is there anything we can do, and what would you like to see to see government involved in? 
there's a lot that we can do, and it always bothers the heck out of me when the when the media trying to protect the feckless Biden administration says that there's not much the president can do. That's complete garbage. Uh, and, and I want to go back, uh, and I, you know, travel in the district. I will say I think that is the biggest concern of the average guy on the street. I hear it all the time from people. You know, I, I I'm on a fixed income. I used to have money left at the end of the month. What am I supposed to do now? So, but there are a lot of things we can do. And I want to go back to what you said about the coronavirus. And that's not really the, that's not the only source of inflation. It's certainly a factor. But in 2020, early 2020, I'm a, I look at things from an economic perspective, right? I want, I want our economy to be humming so everybody has a shot. Well, we were looking at shutting down 30 or 40% of the economy in the United States. And when you have a disruption that large, Ken, you know as well as I do, you're not looking at a recession. You're at risk of a depression that could take 10 years to crawl out of. So I was 100% behind the Families First and the CARES Act. There was, I, I, it, you know, I, I knew that, that there were risks on the other side, but I knew that, that those risks were paled in comparison to the risks that we were facing when we shut down 40% of the economy. So, And then when the PPP program was part of the CARES Act, man, I was on the phone. I, I was on the, 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 the law was enacted, and 10 days later, that uh, that loan program went into effect for small businesses. And on the Grand Strand, you know, hell, we got hotels and restaurants, tourism, hospitality industry was probably the most affected industry uh, nationwide. Now, something like 15% of all workers in the country work in the hospitality industry. There's 1,700 restaurants on the Grand Strand alone. So, yeah, I was very concerned and very worried. And so what I did before the law was even passed, I was calling – the community bankers in this area, uh, uh, Reliance, Anderson Brothers, uh, uh, South State, uh, CCNB, I was calling all those guys and say, guys, get your lawyers on the phone and be ready because this is getting ready to happen and your people are going to need it. And I had uh, Zoom call after Zoom call after Zoom call. I wanted this area prepared. If nowhere else was prepared, I was prepared. In fact, they called the State Banking Association, and I was on the phone with the State Banking uh, Association educating them about what was getting ready to happen because I was worried that the money was going to dry up. Really, It did dry up, but I was going worried it was going to get dried up before the people who really need it uh, could get access to it. And so I'm really proud of what happened. We were more prepared than most areas were, and the fact that we went through that economic shock with as little disruption as we did was, I mean, it's, it's just about a miracle. Uh, Steve Mnuchin, Trump's uh, uh, Secretary of Treasury, that guy is brilliant and a ramrod, and he was not going to take no for an answer. And to, have, to think about passing a law and 10 days later implementing a program like that uh, is just, we could pull that off, is just amazing. Now, then <clears throat> along comes December, and there was a, a call for a, a second uh, uh, a second round, and President Trump pushed it really hard, and it called for $600 uh, of relief for Americans and uh, a little extension of the PPP program. Honestly, I was worried about inflation at that part, at that point. But I wanted to back up the president, so I voted for it. And he made me really angry the next day because that night, before we, <laughs> when the ink wasn't even dry because we passed that second round, he said, oh, we made a mistake. Republicans should have put $2,000 per person in there. You remember that? I do. And so, and so Pelosi immediately puts on the floor 
uh, to increase it by $1,400. The Democrats passed it, it didn't get across the line. And that was the impetus Joe Biden used to come in, you know, his first month in Congress and put across the line the American Rescue Plan. And, I, and most of that was just paying off Democrat voters. I mean, 100 and, or 350 billion, I can't remember the number, 150 billion was for uh, bailing out union pension plans. Didn't have a damn thing to do with coronavirus. Uh, you know, uh, 350 million for states, most of which was allocated to the blue states to bail them out. Uh, uh, there was uh, extension of the unemployment when the economy was trying to recover, and and, and this uh, extra payment for the child tax credit. We were paying people not to work, and it absolutely delayed our recovery, and it certainly uh, added much fuel to the inflation fire. But that's not all, Ken. Think about this: when President Trump, early in his in his uh, uh, term in office. He knew, and I totally agreed with him, and Bob Whiteheiser, his hard-nosed trade representative, said, we have got to drag China to the trade table because they're stealing from us, and they're not going to willingly give it up. We can't just go in uh, with our hands you know, folded and say we need to renegotiate because they're not going to do it. We have to drag them to the table. So how did we do it? We have imposed tariffs on steel and aluminum, and we imposed tariffs on a raft, thousands of Chinese products, 25% tariffs across the board. Well, for a year or two, China just, they just lowered their prices and sucked it up themselves, and the prices for Americans didn't really change, but now they're tired of that. And so those prices are flowing through to Americans. You don't think 25% tariffs are inflationary? And then think about this. Uh, So we need to be revisiting those tariffs. Now, if I'm, you know, it's one thing if we're going to be negotiating with China, and we were doing that, and we got to a phase one agreement. The goal was to get to an agreement that we could unilaterally enforce to keep them from stealing from us, that we could do it by ourselves because the World Trade Organization proved totally ineffective in enforcing trade agreement. But when the coronavirus hit, that negotiation stopped, and now we got a Biden administration. I don't think they can spell trade. I've asked their trade representative many times what they're what their posture is with China. And she looks at me with a blank face. I don't think she knows what their posture is. So we, if, we're gonna, if we're not going to be negotiating a trade agreement, we need to drop these tariffs. The reason the Biden administration won't do it, even though they know it's inflationary, is because of the labor unions. The labor unions want the, the tariffs. And so, uh, and so the Biden administration is going to leave them in place, I'm afraid. And then the one other thing that, that people don't think about that I think is enormously important is, and this sounds silly, but think about it, ethanol. You know, we got 15% of the world's grain getting ready to come offline in Ukraine. The experts are telling us millions of people are going to starve, and the U.S. government is subsidizing corn being made into fuel with very little environmental benefit, no energy benefit, it drives up the cost of gas, which goes into everything. It drives up the cost of food because you're taking half of the U.S. corn pop, well, 40% of the U.S. corn produced, and you're put it in, putting it in into gasoline for, for no reason other than we started a subsidy 15 years ago when we thought we were out of oil, when the settled science uh, at the time was the peak oil theory. And then finally, the last thing that they could obviously do is to stop this nonsense about going back and forth between, okay, we're going to lease federal lands for gas production, and no, we're not, and yes, we are, and no, we're not. 
uh, and say, uh, energy companies, we're going to back you up. We're going to actually incentivize you to produce energy because we want low-cost energy because energy goes into everything. So that's four things that the Biden administration can do right now, and that will be my top priority in the next Congress is fighting inflation. And there's lots of things we can do. Very well explained. Congressman, I wish we had the rest of the show, but we've got other things to take care of. And I know you're a busy man traveling about the district. We will see you in a couple of weeks at the FMU Performing Arts Center. Appreciate all you do, and thank you for joining us this morning. Again, my pleasure, and I look forward to the debate. Thank you, sir. Congressman Tom Rice on Wake Up Carolina. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Uh, we got to hustle along now. Congressman calls in and thinks he, I'm kidding. <laughs> we give the congressman all the time he needs when he calls in. Our time. feeble attempt at radio brilliance. Mike Nunn, Florence County Sheriff's Office is with us. Um, and, and I'm not going to ask you good decision, bad decision. Should he have done this? Should he have not done that? But we had a lot of questions and conversation. You actually sent me a couple of texts try, trying to kind of inform me as to how you guys operate in that universe. But um, but take give us a kind of a cliff note tutorial on um, the sentencing guidelines. Um, uh, how I don't want to say at the mercy you are. What what sort of relationship does law enforcement have with those who execute sentences or or, or grant bond or parole? So um, happy to have that conversation with you. As we talked about last time, you know, law enforcement is is one of the spokes in the wheel. Uh, we have a limited role. Ours is the uh, executive branch, and we are uh, to enforce the laws. The judicial branch um, dispenses the law. So um, law enforcement uh, brings charges. Um, you know, under our Constitution, everyone who's charged is innocent until proven guilty uh, beyond a reasonable doubt in a court of law. And so uh, just because someone's charged with a crime doesn't mean they're necessarily guilty of or going to be found guilty of it. So that presumption of innocence is a very strong um, uh, incentive in our, our process, and it's a good one. Uh, you, know, you go back, uh, the reason the founders put it in there is they suffered through a, uh, a, a different criminal justice system with, with the king, and so they wanted to make sure that these protections were available for uh, everyone charged with a crime. So that's in there. And so if you're simply charged with a crime and you're still innocent until proven guilty, what happens between the time you're charged and the time of your trial? Well, uh, under our system, um, you know, you're not guilty of anything, yet you have this presumption of innocence. So um, why should you be incarcerated or in jail during that time frame? And so uh, the Constitution also uh, allows for an individual charged with a crime to a reasonable bond uh, between the time of the charge and the time of adjudication, either guilty or innocent. Um, so uh, the, the bonding process is, is a key part of our constitutional rights, and everybody's entitled to a reasonable bond except if the court determines that, and it's a balancing act, and it's a subjective determination on the part of the court, with each defendant, um, are they a flight risk? Which means, are they going to come back to, for trial? You know, can we rely on them if we let them out? Will they be back for trial to to meet these charges? Yes, no. And the other component of that is, are they a danger to the community? You know, is there something in this charge or this history of this individual that indicates that either 
Uh, if we let him out, he's still going to be engaged in this type of, of criminal activity. And is it a danger to the community? So, again, that's a, I'm not a judge, but I, I know enough about the process to know that those are the key things that the judges are going to be weighing uh, to determine what a reasonable bond is for an individual. So, um, again, flight risk, are they going to return uh, for trial um, versus uh, danger to the community? How much input does law enforcement have? In other words, we're pretty damn sure he did this, or we're not certain at all. I mean, we've got this charge. In other words, when a magistrate or a judge sits down to give bond, how much information have you provided um, circumstantially that you believe they're guilty or not? So we typically attend most of the bond hearings uh, for individuals, certainly on uh, serious crimes, and uh, we try to inform the court of what our view is on the uh, reasonableness of the bond, but you know, ultimately that decision is is up to the um, to the court. And sometimes the solicitor's office, if it's a general sessions charge, uh, might be involved in uh, recommendations as well. So uh, you know, the court looks across the universe of options that they have, uh, and and one of the things that we're going to want to uh, be asked by the judge is, what is their criminal history? You know, um, have they been charged with uh, things before? Is this uh, does this look like repeat activity? Um, what is the nature of the crime alleged? Is it violent? Did they uh, are they alleged to have hurt someone? Um, you know, uh, you know, do they have ties to the community? They have family here, a job here, relatives here. Uh, that would that would tend to suggest that they would not leave and they would still be here uh, when the time comes for trial. So, you know, those, again, are the subjective things that the court's going to be asking us to weigh in on and provide information. Uh, Can you hang around one more segment? We we got backed up and jammed up. Let's take a break now. Mike can hang around a couple more minutes. I want to ask him about this this kind of national movement of sentence leniency and get a, a law enforcement's perspective on that. Back in a minute. Welcome back. Mike Nunn, Florence County Sheriff's Office is with us this morning, has agreed to stay for a couple of more minutes. I want to ask you this. Um, I'm a good old boy. I'll confess to being a good old boy. If I get caught in another state with $3.2 million worth of cocaine, guns, and cash, and you let me go home that night, you're going to have to come find me. I mean, I, am I being, is that crazy? Is that ridiculous? Is that an absurd assumption to make? Uh, it would certainly go into the uh, flight risk uh, consideration. You know, uh, you don't have ties to that community. You're looking at substantial fines and imprisonment. Um, you know, you uh, you might not want to show back up. Yeah, you just make a calculus. Okay, I want to go to this national sentencing leniency. Uh, the Obama administration kind of, and a lot of Republicans agreed that we got too many people incarcerated. They're not violent offenders. They shouldn't be in jail. Um, and that has led to what I would call um, a, a super lax judicial system in... Um, granting bonds and things like I mean, is, is that something that has played into this? Well, sure. And the, the national trend is to uh, more lenient sentences. You know, the federal uh, sentencing guidelines were implemented back in the 90s, um, back during the uh, uh, Clinton administration when they were uh, looking at uh, safe streets initiatives and, um, you know, three strikes and all types of things like that. And so, over the course of time, the the public sentiment has shifted away from that to where, well, maybe those sentences were too harsh, or maybe those sentences were 
um, disparately um, uh, handed down to certain um, demographic groups. Um, and so it's caused uh, a review of that. And I think, uh, you know, a lot of these things that we've talked about before, these trends in society are pendular. They swing one way, they swing back the other way uh, over time. I think we're seeing a swing back uh, at, at that point from okay. some of the sentences. Appreciate your time. Thank you for staying Glad with us in a here. couple Thanks of seconds. Mike Nunn, Florence County Sheriff's Office. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. I want to try to spend a little time tomorrow. Probably won't have uh, – got to uh, think Tanya Powers will be with us in just a couple of minutes about um, New Jersey and New York and cannabis and marijuana. And uh, marijuana's got the best record of any party. Or If marijuana were a political party, it would be the dominant political party in America <laughs> today. Republicans have won and lost some races. Uh, Democrats have won and lost some races. I don't know of a single place, ah, one or two, that marijuana being on the ballot has been voted down. I mean, I really well, don't. Ma- marijuana. Huh? I mean, its record is not perfect, but it's really good. I mean, Greg Maddox lost baseball games, but he won a lot more than he lost. Marijuana would be the Greg Maddox of American politics today. They win a lot more uh, than they lose, especially above the Mason-Dixon line and west of, of the Mississippi River. There's still a southern culture that plays into it's church. I mean, it really is. It's, um, how many times have I said this about the Republican Party? You don't get crossed up with that church crowd. You better not get crossed up with the gun crowd, the church crowd, or the business crowd. Business crowd gives you the money, but the church crowd or the gun crowd are um, very zealous in their support or not of a candidate. But Tanya Powers will be with us in just a bit. Um, I'm getting a lot of text about the lawsuit. Uh, you know, the county council, the county, in essence, uh, is involved in now a lawsuit. Uh, I think most of us saw this coming, or at least uh, – most people in my world that are familiar with this saw this coming. Um, the, I mean, the, 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 I don't know, the lawsuit arises as a result of um, the unlawful and discriminatory actions of the defendants, in this case, um, Florence County. Uh, I don't want to list the council members by name. There's no need in doing that. I mean, that's unfair to them. Um, they're, they're doing what they can do to represent their constituency. Uh, the constituency didn't want a development, and they went to bat trying to um, stop the development from happening. But but now you're into you know c- kind of legal matters. Doesn't matter what you sense or what you what you feel. This is not about senses or feelings. This is about what the law says and how you um, properly or not interpret uh, the the legal standing of this argument. But there's a 70 page. Um, uh, document that has been filed. Uh, Mike Nunn's a lawyer. He helped me understand a little bit better federal court, who the judge may or may not be, who the law firms um, will be. Uh, you you kind of got to ask yourself, is there is there two potential outcomes? I mean, one is the county wins the lawsuit. I think that's highly unlikely. I mean, I think that is highly unlikely that the county loses. The, the, as a matter of law. Yeah, as a saying. matter of law. I mean, yeah. you know, whether you're trying to do what's right or not. I mean, the law says clearly that this company had a right to do this. They dotted all the I's. They crossed all the T's. The county tried to intervene on behalf of its people. I think that's to be admired and respected, but there's still a legal argument that I think sides with uh, the plaintiff in this case, and that is the developer trying to build a low-income housing, uh, I guess housing development in the middle of one of the uh, more established neighborhoods in in our listening area, Florence, is our... um, um, we broadcast from Florence into Sumter, into Orangeburg. This is a Florence-sensitive issue. Um, I talked earlier about marijuana being the Greg Maddox of politics. <laughs> Republicans have done okay. 
Democrats have done okay. But when marijuana's on the ballot, I mean, it's done exceedingly well. Well, New Jersey, um, legal marijuana sales begin today, and the New York City mayor says he wants to use legal cannabis or the industry to help communities targeted by the war on drugs. That's a bit of a confusing liner as far as I'm concerned, but Fox News Radio's Tanya J. Powers is in New York. She's with us this morning. Tanya, good morning. How are you? Hey, good morning. Good. How are you? So can you help clarify some of the confusion that we have down here? Well, I can tell you what I know. Okay. And I don't know if that'll clarify things or not, but we can start there. Uh, as far as New Jersey goes, they're, as you said, they are, as of today, um, selling uh, the, well, legalizing uh, recreational marijuana. Users 21, 21 years old and up can buy up to an ounce of weed per transaction at dispensaries without a medical card. Um, to get any more of that, there you, that requires a, a medical card that uh, you know a health care provider has to get like a prescription um, that you got to be a registered patient. There's a whole a whole bunch of things you have to go through to get the medical uh, cannabis or can, med- medicinal cannabis or cannabis product uh, from a treatment center every 30 days. So there's there's different rules for both of those. Like I said, the recreational users can purchase up to an ounce in a single transaction uh, now that those dispensaries are opening today. So that's sort of the, uh, the, 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 you know, kind of the, I guess the thing that's spurring the rest of this going on. I mean, we've seen, you know, state after state uh, legalize this. The New York City part of this is our mayor, Eric Adams, is proposing a $5 million investment to promote the growth of the cannabis industry. And he, his idea is and he's floated this earlier this month at a panel discussion in Albany. He said his team is looking at whether the city could allow cannabis cultivation on the rooftops of New York City Housing Authority facilities. Um, at this point, it's just roof space. Um, they say that you know the idea behind this is that people who live in the those housing facilities could you know get jobs staffing and you know overseeing the greenhouses. The problem with this is there's marijuana is still illegal on the federal level including federally subsidized public housing which is where this idea kind of hits a snag um they they report that a hud spokesperson says as of monday this is from gothamist that uh, adam's office had still not reached out to them you know to talk about this idea uh, unless the law changes they can't do that since it's federally subsidized public housing however um the idea of the law changing is not that far-fetched because the House has already passed a bill uh, that would decriminalize marijuana on the federal level and take it off the list of controlled substances. The Senate has not moved on this, so it's still kind of up in the air at this point. And, Tanya, that wouldn't be a decision made by the city council, but rather the state legislature in Albany, right? No, this, this is a federal thing. This okay, I got you, got thing. you, got you, got you. Okay, yeah. this is federal mm-hmm. legislation. Yeah. Fair enough. So, but but the New York City mayor has made it known that that is his intent if he can get legislative approval and, and move forward. Yeah, I mean, this is something he is an idea that he has has said. You know, he you know, is calling for a partnership with state and local leaders to you know to figure this out somehow and you know to see if this is an idea that can be can be used. Um, you know, they're saying that look, this could you know generate a whole lot of money in its first year even like you know billions uh in in sales and 
provide a lot of jobs within three years. Now, this is this is some you know stuff from his uh, his office has put out that statement with those numbers. I'm not quite sure where they're getting those and what uh, estimations they're, they're using that from, but that's what they're that's what they're saying. Like I said, this is all still up in the air. His idea of the housing authority stuff can't be done until the federal law is actually changed. Gotcha. Good deal. Thank you, Tanya. Appreciate your mm-hmm. time. Good to talk sure. with you. And uh, kind of an interesting story there between New York City, uh, now the, the city government getting the weed business. weed business. Yeah, there you go to raise some um, some revenue. Need some people to watch over the weed business. And it's interesting to hear a, a news journalist professional like Tanya Jay refer to, oh, you can buy an ounce of weed. Yeah, but I think weed. she grew up in Tennessee, if I'm not mistaken. So Southerners, um, what do you think this song Dixie, Dixieland Delight's about? The Alabama song Dixieland Delight. I mean, you would imagine it's about the girl, right? Holding my lover with the other one hand on the wheel. No, it's about weed. <laughs> I mean, that 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 was a kind of a uh, Southerners at some point in time in Alabama referred to a certain um, I don't want to say a brand. I mean, it's not like cigarettes. They're in Paul Mall and Marlboro and Winston, um, but there was a certain. I think there is a Willie's Reserve, if I'm not mistaken. Willie Nelson has his own brand. Heard of that? Of marijuana. Um, Willie's living proof that weed won't kill you. Uh, I mean, I, I mean, the guy's what, 88 years old and still touring. Um, I, I think he's the guy waiting on COVID to, to be, you know, done away with. So some of the requirements of the precautions uh, would be taken away. Hey, I want to go back to something that we talked about earlier this morning. And because uh, I don't think we did a good job of this. I know we didn't do a good job of this. So um, Twitter, remember the, the story about Twitter. Now, um, not only is Ron DeSantis trying to... Um, I don't know. Say goof around with uh, isn't Goofy a Disney goofy, character? Oh, yeah. Let's just see what uh, you did n- there. Not only is he trying to goof around, <laughs> oh, uh, or you know, or um, or mess around with uh, with Disney, but but he's he's also <laughs> thank you, Mike. Appreciate <laughs> yeah, that. Good, he's good. also um, he's also got uh, he's threatening Twitter. Uh, Ron DeSantis oh. is a man on a mission. Uh, Ron DeSantis uh, is, I guess, stepping in to this uh, dispute between Elon Musk and, um, and and Twitter, and he's taking action, and the action he's taking is trying to convince state legislatures um, and some of the state's lawyers to review options, legal options, um, in regards to taking legal action against Twitter. Why does Ron DeSantis have any right or authority to tell Twitter what they can and cannot do? Because they have a... A fiduciary responsibility. We know that. I mean, the, the, the board of directors has a job to do. Uh, they're paid about three hundred grand a year. They don't own any of the stock, but they they make about three hundred grand a year being on the board at Twitter. Um, so DeSantis is basically saying that he has a responsibility to hold the board at Twitter accountable if they breach some of these uh, fiduciary duties they have because the. Retirement System Pension Fund is heavily invested in Twitter. Ah, okay. He's a man on a mission. Wow. I mean, if you don't believe Ron DeSantis, Ron DeSantis may be worse than Donald Trump <laughs> about finding a good argument. Yeah, My grandmother used to say, you'd rather climb a tree and argue with somebody than stand flat-footed on the ground and, and, and agree. And I kind of, yeah. I think it's more fun to, to uh, passionately disagree with one another. But DeSantis, I mean, we'll get to Disney here in a second. But DeSantis has his, uh, I mean, he has his legal team, his lawyers that work both for the executive branch and the legislative branch to see whether or not, um, to see whether or not the the board of directors at Twitter are breaching their responsibilities 
um, in in placing fiduciary responsibility, uh, uh, the fiduciary uh, uh, obligation they have and would so be the state of Florida first and foremost. Might, might have an interest in a standing in this issue because the retirement system is invested. Well, I mean, in I don't Twitter. know. How, it's hard wow. to argue that they didn't. When Twitter Twitter has a right to reject the bid, I mean, there's no doubt about this. Rejecting the bid forces Musk to go another way. Twitter does not have a right, in my humble opinion, I mean, I think it's legal, and I think it began in the 80s, and it began to address some of these hostile takeovers. The poison pill devalues the company. I mean, there, there's no other way around it. The poison pill allows shareholders, other than Elon Musk, to buy shares at a discounted price, and it dilutes values of the share. Well, if you're diluting values of the share, how are you not um, – you know, impugning the value of the company or devaluing the company. Of course you are. I mean, the, the, so you are breaching your fiduciary responsibility. And I guess the counter argument would be we are in the short term, but in the long term, we're keeping one of these corporate raiders. We believe this is in the best interest of the shareholders. Correct, because he's trying to buy it at 54 bucks a share. And we believe if we can, you know, figure out a little better way to monetize some of the um, some of the users we have, it could be worth 70 or $75. It's kind of a... um. I mean, it's a very abstract argument, but I, I guess it's, uh, it's probably the only legitimate argument they could make. But, um, but, but DeSantis claims um, that Twitter's motivation for halting or stopping um, Musk trying to take over the company is, has no financial basis. It's all about politics. And, and when you put politics over finance, it's obvious what you're doing. I mean, you're, you're, you're putting things other than that fiduciary responsibility you have. Um, so, so, yeah, when I read the article, I said, Ron DeSantis has no business. I mean, as much as he may not like Twitter's trying to stop Elon Musk, he doesn't have any legal standing, but he does. And he seems to be the guy that wakes up every morning trying to find a new angle or a new avenue of which to create um, political and economic conflict. Um, Disney, let's go to that. Disney's probably even a bigger story than that. Um, and he does have a lot of authorities here, no question about it. I mean, he can be a um, an influencer. He can be a, a lobbyist. Uh, you know the 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 spat, the disagreement that DeSantis has had with the Disney company. Um, he's asking them to basically revisit, and it's that time of the um they do it every decade. I mean, it's been kind of a carte blanche, kind of a, a rubber stamp. This is the Reedy Creek Improvement District that Correct. Walt Disney himself helped negotiate. Before they built Disney World, it's like the back Vatican. In the late 60s. I mean, it's like the Vatican. I mean, it's his own country. I mean, in all honesty, uh, you can read the um, the Improvement Act, and and it really is. It creates a country within a state. I mean, it's even more exclusive than a state. I mean, they don't have to abide by anything. They've got their own fire. They've got their own rescue. They've got their own tax finance district. I, I told you a couple of months ago, they could build a nuclear plant. At Disney, if they chose, and the government can't do anything about I think it. Back in the day, what they told the state was, "You just your responsibility is to build the roads to get traffic to our property." And that's what Florida did. And, and once it once it gets to the property, it becomes uh, a, the Creedy the, the Reedy Creek Improvement District, which is a um. I mean, there there are about two thousand of these around the country. I mean, this isn't the only one. It's probably the most exclusive, and it's the most publicly known. But there are a lot of these sorts of special districts around. You've got water districts and fire districts. I mean, there's, I think I read somewhere there's nearly 2,000 of these special districts, but there's nothing like this. I mean, this is really, I mean, I, you know, I don't know what sort of person Walt Disney was. You've probably read more about Walt Disney than I have. Um, 
but but he's asking lawmakers, and they already have in one chamber, um, to basically end the special tax district that has allowed the company to um, govern its assets as they see fit. Doesn't matter what the state general assembly decides or what the governor's office says, um, they get to do it the way they want to do it. Now, at the center of this is, and here's where we get political and and, and less economic. The, the the Florida's parental rights to education bill. That's the bill that DeSantis signed into law that basically, I'll try to clean it up as best I can. It bars classroom instruction on gender identity and sexual orientation for school children um, through the grade three. From kindergarten to grade three, um, it, it absolutely prohibits any sort of discussion or instruction on gender identity and sexual orientation. Um, now, now once again, Disney, which uh, which depend on this uh, this Reedy Creek Improvement District, uh, it was created in '67. It has its own board of supervisors. It has its own fire department. Um, the land use and environmental. I mean, I don't think EPA has any authority. I mean, that, that's kind of bizarre to me. The Environmental Protection Agency. I don't think has any authority at all via the agreement that Disney made, and it's renewed every 10 years. So I think 60, 72, 82, 92, 02, 12, and now it's 2022. And it seems to me that the majority of Republicans and a couple of Democrats in the the uh, Florida General Assembly are kind of on DeSantis's team. Now, now, once again, here's a very interesting place to go find the rest of the story. When you go to the National Review, and you read, I mean, this article came off, uh, no, this was Wall Street Journal, but I've got an article in the National Review, and th- there are about half the Republicans who say he's meddling. Stop it, DeSantis. I mean, you, you're acting like a Democrat. You know, you're getting government involved in places government doesn't need to get involved. Uh, the state of Florida made a deal with Walt Disney. Disney World has been uh, a tourist attraction that has generated enormous revenues for the state of Florida. Um, you have no business at Twitter and what they're doing, what they aren't doing. And then you've got about no, about half the other commentators or, or people giving comments or saying, go get them. I mean, go get them. It is this confliction point that the Republican Party has with itself. It's not, I mean, it's not conflicted with the Democrats. We know what they are. I mean, they're raging liberals. I mean, they're nuts. I mean, they, they want six-year-olds to have sex changes and, and they want to have three-year-olds uh, be lectured, instructed about gender fluidity, and you know, uh, because you were born with a certain whatever it may be, doesn't mean uh, you know the kid at some point in time gets to decide whether he is uh, a boy or a girl. I mean, that's who the Democrats are—the liberal Democrats, not all Democrats, but the liberal Democrats. The, the 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 debate is so interesting to me, and I think the the epicenter of this debate is the comment section at the National Review when one says about DeSantis, "Stop it." I mean, you're acting like a Democrat. You're acting like an activist, like a government activist who wants government to get involved um, in every affairs of the private sector. And then the other half kind of goes back to Jim yesterday. You know, when Jim said, I'll say it, I think big corporations are bad. I mean, I think they're real bad. And I think the Republican Party should address some of the ills and some of the problems that big corporate America, uh, the mega corporations, I think is the way, uh, the phraseology that he used. And um, so that's kind of where we are in the Republican Party with the Republican brand. They're about, I think the America First agenda requires us to be more activist if we're going to address some of these things 
the, the intellectual conservative is going to always defer to this limited government, you know, lower taxes. It's kind of a, um, it's almost, it's almost scripture to some of those people. I mean, it's almost um, biblical in the way, you know, Buckley said this, or Wills said that, or, or Locke wrote this, or Jefferson opined on that. And they're exactly right. I mean, it is a very, it's a party that historically has been predicated and based upon a very limited government. Government not intervening in any more than it um, has the constitutional authority to. DeSantis is kind of representing the America First movement that, that J.D. Vance said this yesterday. We played a clip. You know, are we going to be politically active when we gain control of government? Or are we going to give speeches at Harvard about Jeffersonians and libertarianism? And uh, I, I don't know the answer to that, but it is a very interesting and important debate. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937. Is DeSantis taking on Disney and Twitter or is DeSantis taking on wokeism? I mean, I think wokeism encompasses censorship. Yeah, because and, he's responding sure. to what, what Disney did, getting involved in, in the bill in Florida, and Twitter as well, and their wokeness and their censorship and all of the above. So, yes, I think it's a response to, and he's finally fighting back. Thank goodness. And that seems to be what a lot of the motivation is for those who see the world less than liberal. I don't want to say conservatives, because I'm talking about Musk and some of these others. I don't know if you saw this or not, but Musk tweeted out yesterday um, about Netflix. Netflix had a horrible day. Um, they actually, for the first time ever, lost subscribers and in their forward lookings said that they expect to lose more than 2 million subscribers in the second quarter of this year. That means that in the first half of this year, they would have lost about 7 million subscribers. And um, now, now CNBC says the competitive streaming world, you know, compared to uh, Disney and HBO and all these other streaming companies have created pressure on the marketplace. Um, Netflix is an, an unbelievably um, woke company. So Elon basically tweets out the woke mind virus is making Netflix unwatchable. Um, and that's why the shares are in complete and total nosedive. If I'm not mistaken, that company has lost 40% of its street mm -hmm. value or, um, you know, market value and the valuations based on the price of the stock. But um, it's lost about 40% of its um, of its value. If you believe, well, you know, the stock. I mean, that's all you can believe is what what, what yeah, is the stock the worth today. Yeah. That's the measurement. No doubt about so, it. So maybe it's fine. We're finally proving go woke, go broke. Yeah, well, I mean, we, which we, has you just know, been a statement so far. And that has to be the strategy. And that really goes back to um, can you be an intellectual conservative and defer to these um, – these sentiments or sensibilities that the sensibility of the conservative has been to do what kind of let, you know, let the free market sort out what the free market does. DeSantis, JD Vance, Teal, Musk. Um, I'm not saying they're conservatives. I don't know what, uh, you know, Musk is. I mean, I think DeSantis is a, a conservative. I don't think he's an orthodox conservative. Um, not in the Ted Cruz mold. I mean, it, I think DeSantis is a conservative activist. I think Teal's a conservative activist. I think a lot of these guys are conservative activists. Uh, they could care less what the National Review says. Musk is, I keep referring to him as, he's kind of an island. I mean, what, what does Elon think? I, I don't have any idea. I mean, he'll, he'll, say, he'll, he'll have a stance on one issue that you'll go, hmm. And the next time you, you think he got him figured out and his stance on another issue is completely different or alternative to where you thought he would be. And you're like, wow, I mean, I can't figure that guy out. And I think that's to his credit. Let's go to the phone. Joe in Hartsville. Morning, Joe. Yeah. 
this whole thing amazes me. I mean, we vote for people, send them to office to fight for our values. And when they do that, people are amazed. And they say, oh, you can't do that. You know, that's how all this started. The Republican Party back in the 90s says, oh, let's don't talk about abortion and let's leave that one alone. So what does that do? That leaves the other party to determine all the parameters. So when we find somebody who will push back, you know, then they always oh, free speech. Uh, the private company doesn't have to abide by free speech, but uh, Twitter is not a private company. It is a public company owned by shareholders. They have taken that stock from $77 a share when Trump was in his heyday all the way back down to, what, 40-something? And Musk offered them $54 a share as a fiduciary responsibility. They should have accepted that. Because all the shareholders, and there's a lot of pension funds, which I want to talk to you one day about Social Security, you know, how they, but that's another story. We need to talk in this uh, this uh, candidate forum about what they're going to do to fix Social Security, because it's a mess. But anyway, we, we elect these people to fight for us, and no, Twitter does not have the right to censor people. It's a it's a public company supported by public stocks that are owned by pension funds and state pension funds and hedge funds and all this other stuff, but also people. So you 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 can't throw the constitution out. It it's a firewall against the government, but it's also a firewall against each other. You know if. I don't want to buy your your program because you want to censor me. That's one thing, if if you own it yourself. But if you have a, a stock that's available to the public, I mean, there are laws that require them to accept the highest bid for the purchase of a company. And that's what he's doing. He's looking into the the ramifications and as far as Disney goes, you know, Walt Disney's values are long gone. So, you know, take with that as you will. Y'all have a good day. Thank you, Joe. Joe nailed it. I mean, it, it is so obvious what he said, and I've not thought of it that way. You rep- you elect people to go fight for your values. You don't, you don't represent people to go debate on behalf of the way you believe and see the world. When, when, when one political party kind of throws the gauntlet down and says, look, we're going to take everything about the Constitution, everything about, you know, the conservative way of governance. We're going to take that and we're going to throw it out the window and we're going to build it the way we want it built. Do do you believe that you can intellectually argue or debate with those people and say, well, I mean, do you not understand that this is not the way the Constitution intended? Well, what Joe's arguing, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but Joe's basically saying we have had war declared upon us and we refuse to declare war upon the other side or accept the challenge of the declaration of war. I mean, if America is worth fighting for and one side's willing to throw punches and, and, and bring a gun and we're still sitting here 
trying to, to, to reasonably compromise and articulate our points of view the way Romney or somebody like that would want us to be. Maybe that's why. I mean, it's so obvious, but, but I've not seen it that way. We are enthusiastically in support of people who we believe will go to Columbia, go to Washington, wherever, wherever across this country and fight for things we believe in because we don't believe the, the last generation or so of Republican leaders have had a lot of fight in them. I mean, why did, I mean, the majority of people, when you ask them your support of Trump is based on what? I think he'll go fight for me. I mean, I know he's a, a horse's butt at times. I mean, I know he says things that he shouldn't say at times. I, I know he's made a lot of mistakes in his life that, that I don't approve of. But, but damn it, I think he'll go there and fight on our behalf. And it's so obvious now that the reason, I'll give an example. Why do we like Musk? Because we think he's got a little fight in him. How many of us understand where Elon stands on anything political? He's, and he's willing to put his money where sure. his mouth is. He's a fighter. I mean, he's a fighter. He's willing to get in the arena and throw a punch. Why do we like Peter Thiel? I mean, I can tell you why I did a majority of you. I mean, I think Marty said a second ago, that guy you keep talking about. <laughs> <laughs> the guy with a lot of money that you keep talking about. But I mean, why do we like Thiel? He puts his money where his mouth is. He doesn't shy away from the fight. And, and, and what we've been, historically, we've been led by these people like Mitt Romney, who, who want to conversate about politics. Let's, let's discuss this for a minute. What well, what John McCain? Let's discuss this for a minute. And all of a sudden, we got one you know party that not interested at all in discussing or compromising. In fact, they're driving a bulldozer twenty four seven. And and I think our voters and our political movement is tired of being the bug on the windshield. We want to be the windshield for a while. So so when DeSantis says no, we're not going to let deal. We're not going to renew this um, Reedy Creek investment or, or district improvement uh, improvement district. Um, we're going to we're going to abolish it. We're going to do away with it. Why? What did Disney do to you? They insulted my voters. That they insulted the consciousness of my voters. I have an obligation to defend my voters, to fight for my voters. And you're standing against things they fundamentally believe in. Therefore, I am the conduit. I am the vehicle of which they believe is there to fight on their behalf. Let's go to the phone. Here's Cocky Mike. Hey, Mike. Hey, guys. Uh, here's something else you can throw into your conversation about um, how to stock prices uh, indicate consumers. We're well, not consumer, but political feeling. I walked by a TV just now, and Tesla is up 10%, 10% in free market today. So how did, what, how did that play into all that? People will have confidence in what Elon's doing and willing to put the money in and make a little dollars off of it. Throw that in there and talk about that. Thank, thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. You know, it is interesting to watch. I'll give you an example. I'll give you the best example I've ever seen, and I'm sure of this. When we began debating Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, let's be fair, the Affordable Care Act, when we began debating the Affordable Care Act, um, I was still heavily involved in politics. I mean, I was in the middle of it, and I knew a lot of the suspects. And I, I mean, I didn't, and I was not in Washington, but I was in the middle of Columbia, and I understood some of the um, the goings on, the moving parts. And uh, like Mike said about Tesla, I can remember having a conversation with a bunch of insiders, and someone said this would have been in two thousand nine. Obama gets elected in nine. I got elected in. Obama got elected in eight. I got elected in ten. So it would have been the very beginning of my stint as lieutenant governor. But I can remember being in one of these meetings and someone said, I'll tell you what you do. Pay attention to the stock price 
of pharmaceutical companies, healthcare, I mean, um, insurance companies, and hospitals. I mean, the publicly traded hospitals, just pay attention to those, the pharmaceutical companies, and the insurance companies. And I remember a bit naively say, why? I mean, why? He said, because they're writing the bill, man. I mean, the, the con- Congress is not writing this bill. The lobbyists for the insurance companies, the lobbyists for the pharmaceutical companies, the lobbyists for the for the hospitals, they're going to write the bill. The bill is not going to pass unless they say, okay, we're good with it. Because they fund these campaigns. They raise the money necessary for these people to be um, celebrity slash politicians. And, and maybe Tesla's the modern day uh, that, maybe Goldman Sachs or J.P. Morgan. I mean, I'm sure that there, there's a handful of companies, probably more than a handful of companies that, that are doing similar things to then, but that's the most evident example I can give of, of, of ha- kind of having a front row seat. I mean, I'm not in the room with a lobbyist. I'm not a member of Congress, but I was deeply involved in politics, and I, I was associated with a lot of people who make those sorts of decisions. So I started monitoring, and I watched the, um, the healthcare sector, and specifically I watched the insurance companies. I'm talking about insurance companies with heavy concentration in uh, not property and casualty, but health insurance. And I watched and pharmaceutical what, and companies. And what did those stocks Oh, it do? increased. I mean, it was unbelievable. I mean, the value of those companies, it was unbelievable. Now, they, they would lead you to believe that they were a bit disappointed in this. And it looked like to me the carve-out didn't give them that. I mean, they, they express disgruntlement, you know, in that they didn't get what they wanted. They, they really wanted this to happen. But behind the scenes, they were high-fiving one another from one end of Washington to the next. Mm-hmm. And K Street was drinking some of that Jefferson's Ocean, a special occasion to me. I mean, it was um, it was lunch for them. It was lunch, breakfast, and and uh, and dinner, and that's just the nature, and that's what Mike's talking about. You know, how much of this is conspiracy, and how much of it is real? But but I can remember that like it was yesterday, and I can't remember the exact companies, but it was about five or six big insurance companies, five or six big pharmaceutical companies, five or six big companies that own hospitals all over the nation, and their stock went crazy for about the next two or three years. Because they're in the business of providing health care. The government said, either you have health care or you're breaking the law. I mean, you kind of got to like that, don't you? I mean, there has to be, and the government's going to pump money in it. I mean, you know they're going to do that. So we went from about 14% of GDP to now somewhere around 20% of our GDP is in, in health care. It is the great, I, I debate whether we're getting less bang for our buck. There are two sectors of our economy and they're public sector, but they're well, somewhat private public, um, health care and education. When I look at those two sectors, we spend enormous amounts of public dollars in education to not get any more than we do. We spend about the same amount, uh, more, in health care. And when you look at the world rankings, we're okay. We're not anywhere near the most proficient health care system in the world. Take a break. Back in a minute. So there's breaking news, Bloomberg and CNBC. I think the Wall Street Journal as well are reporting that Elon Musk has secured um, committed financing and about $46.5 billion from Morgan Stanley. Rev said he saw that a second ago. I just confirmed it on CNBC. Um, Breaking news, Musk to explore potential tender offer for Twitter has $46.5 billion in committed financing for deal. Now, the tender offer means he buys directly from the shareholder. It would be a little bit different than, you know, a, um, I mean, it would be kind of a, a proxy offer, I guess. I mean, I might be getting above my pay grade here and out of my lane 
but that's the way I would understand this. In other words, if Rev's got 100 shares and he's offered you $54 a share, that there's some procedure you go through to basically sell him your your shares uh, at a premium. You know, somebody's got 1,000 shares, 10,000 shares. Um, very interesting, but it looks like Musk has secured um, Morgan Stanley financing of $46.5 billion. And a lot of that, I would imagine, I mean, I'm just I'm speculating here, Mike. Please bear with me. But Mike said that Tesla stock is up pretty substantially today. That leads me to believe that Musk had intended to liquidate a lot of his Tesla stock. That probably shocks that. So maybe there was some of that liquidation factor built in oh. to the value of Tesla stock. So now Musk appears to have uh, lined up financing for $46.5 billion. Uh, that means he's got about a $10 billion to come up with. Wow. Okay. Um, <laughs> no problem there. Um just, you know, uh, billions, how much, Rev? It's a thousand million. That's just $10,000 million. <laughs> Who doesn't have that laying around? Right. Check my pocket real quick. Sure. Give me a minute or two, Rev. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, um, but no, I'm a speculate now. I don't know I'm right there, but Mike was talking about Tesla stock being up substantially or significantly today. Well, I mean, here's CNBC. Uh, Tesla up big, airlines bounce, bounce back, uh, Disney's dilemma. That's kind of the headlines on CNBC's uh, website. So, um, so I'm speculating that the reason Tesla's having a good day... Yeah, Tesla stock's up almost 11%. Well, see, to me, and that, that just speaks to, okay, the the largest shareholder of the company, founder of the company, is not going to liquidate a high percentage of his investment in Tesla to go buy Twitter. He's found some financing in Morgan Stanley. I uh, wonder what their reasoning is. I'll try to find that out over, uh, well, by tomorrow. We'll, we'll kind of go into detail and specificity as why Morgan Stanley... They're not doing it just to be... Uh, politically strategic. I can assure you, Morgan Stanley is trying to make a splash. They're trying to make a buck. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. 843-661-0937. Do want to extend an invitation? I'll try to do that formally and informally before tomorrow. See if a member of county council wants to come on and address this issue of the lawsuit. Talk tomorrow.